Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens, how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. And on this week's show, Truth Three Times. Welcome back to RCR for Ro Edge, co-founder of Save Women's Sport Australasia. We'll discuss why it's still important to speak up even after the sex self-ID bill has been passed. I follow on from Ro and then talk with Catherine, a transsex woman who has a very unique view on the entire trans debate. You won't want to miss this conversation. I then round up the morning's interviews with Pastor Peter Mortlock, founder of the City Impact Church. We'll discuss the church's place in today's society and why wokeism is so threatened by Christianity. Marty Gibson will also be along to round up our legacy media stories of the week, and then I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. It's a busy morning, so let's crack on. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Dame Cindy is writing a book about leadership. I like the idea you can be your own kind of leader and still make a difference. She extols to Amanda Faithful at stuff. Now, look, I know what you're thinking. How on earth can she even consider writing a book about her leadership style? But this is where I wholeheartedly disagree. Of course she should write her book. She's got very large footsteps to follow. Carl with his manifesto, Adolf with his mind camp, and now who can forget Mal's page Turner, that little red book that lays dog-eared and well-loved on Cindy's nightstand, I'm sure. Every great book, though, needs a catchy title. So what should she call her seminal work? Effective leadership has two classes. Yep, 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 that's exactly what it is. Yeah, nah, too long. What about... How to Divide a Nation in Five Short Years, a memoir of a classy dame. Or perhaps Never Let a Good Pandemic Go to Waste, a Leader's Guide. 
No, this is Aotearoa. I know. Puka puka feroiti. Yeah, that's a little more like it. Whatever title she lands on, it's bound to do well. There are PR lovies who need dust catchers. Then there's an education system that needs fresh material for curriculum, universities to stock and sales to the few remaining bookstores and some well-choreographed signings to coordinate with throngs of adoring yummy mummies and soy boys replete and luscious Lululemon to satisfy. Oh yes, and let's not forget the few rural outhouses that need loo paper when the next emergency arrives. And before you can say mandate, our Dame Cindy's wee book has made it to the bestsellers list, both here and across the ditch. If you find yourself unable to stomach seeing this masterpiece in your favourite store, remember you have another strategy you can deploy. You can always just turn a dern. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Welcome back to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie, and my next guest is Ro Edge, co-founder of Save Women's Sport Australasia. Welcome along, Ro, to Counterculture. How are you? Good, thank you, Marie. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's great to have you here. You spoke to our Rodney a few weeks back. If you haven't caught that interview, head along to realitycheck.radio, go to replays, and you will find Rose's interview there with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And I wanted to pick up on some points that you spoke to Rodney about because it's such an important message. I think the first pressing thing is the recent implementation or passing into law the self-gender ID bill. So for people who haven't heard of this, can you walk people through that? Yeah, sure. So the sex self-ID legislation, it was part of the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Act update, and it came into effect on the 15th of June. And what it does is it allows anybody to change the sex marker on their birth certificate now just by a statutory declaration. There used to be a court process that you used to have to go through. I think it took sort of over three months to go through, but it just ensured that you were actually living as that sex, whatever that means, but, you know, that you weren't just changing it willy-nilly. So now anyone aged over the age of 18 can alter the sex on their birth certificate at will without any need of proof. Um, If you're age 16 or 17, you need a guardian's consent or just a letter of support from a third party. And under 16, a parent or guardian needs to approve that. So you can put on your birth certificate that you want to be male, female or non-binary. 
whatever that is, <laughs> and register it on your birth certificate and change it back a week later if you want to as well as just a $55 charge now. So it's a really quick, easy process. Probably the most astonishing part of the bill is it's had very little, if any, public scrutiny because the media were just determined not to discuss it when, when Speak Up for Women actually tried to hold a roadshow around the country to, to talk through the issues because there were so many concerns with it. You know, when they did the submissions, they did them in a level four lockdown and they still, like, which was just terrible because you couldn't campaign through that. But there were still over 7,000 submissions and over 70% of them were opposed to the legislation. Essentially, it makes a joke of a birth certificate because now they're meaningless. Whatever's on them doesn't need to be the truth. It's just whatever you want it to be. Well, then isn't there also a flow on effect when it comes to other forms of identification? I mean, your birth certificate is one of those set in stone foundational pieces of documentation. Not anymore. So what what happens when you go to apply for a passport or apply for citizenship? Um, Interestingly, um, your passport and driver's license years ago were able to be changed more easily. So now essentially, we don't have any identification document that tells biological fact. That's terrifying. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It is. The biggest thing to know, though, is the one thing that Speak Out for Women did manage to get into the legislation was like some um, specific clauses that mean that the birth certificate can't be, doesn't have to be used as a form of identification that service providers who are single sex service provider, providers can actually request other forms of identification or make decisions based on biological sex too. But a lot of service providers currently think that because sex self-ID has come in, they have to allow men who identify as women into women's safe spaces but that isn't the case. But it's going to be have to be up to the public to educate them on this because our media will still not talk about it. So what about things like public swimming pools? They are often council-owned, local government-run. Yeah. I know that there's already a furore done in Southland around this. So how are councils at the moment looking like they're going to tackle this issue? Well, that is going to be up to the public to push them to tackle it the way they want them to. They'll probably, because we have so many weak leaders when it comes to gender ideology and implementing it, they will probably allow self-ID unless the public really push back against it. So basically the legislation says that it says that birth certificates can be used as evidence of sex or gender. Where service providers need to determine someone's sex or gender, other factors can be considered over and above the sex listed on a birth certificate. They are reflecting the fact that birth certificates aren't meant to be considered evidence of a person's identity, which you would think that they were, but not anymore. Now they're just useless. Now they basically just, the only thing you can guarantee on them that's correct is the date of birth and location of birth at this stage. Well, it's almost reducing that documentation into a piece of vanity, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So really we go back to um, the, like our Human Rights Act, and that women can have single sex spaces where sex, size and stamina are like have an impact. But it really is up to women and girls and, you know, fathers as well to really push to ensure that if pools want to allow transgender people to use the bathrooms of their choice, that they have separate facilities for them to use and they can still provide single sex spaces. 
So they may have some part of the facilities that they can use, but that women and girls can still have their own single-sex spaces as well. But you're going to have to push hard for them. Mm. In terms of those single-sex spaces, because often, like using the pool scenario, a lot of pools have uh, family rooms, for example. So when dads take their daughters to the pool, the dads can't go, you know, they don't want to go into the women's changing room and the women don't want the dads in there either. So they have these family rooms so the dads can change their daughter's clothing and get them all ready for the pool. There has been some talk as that being an option, but do you get the feeling with the changing of this law, the flow-on effect, the butterfly effect, as it were, has not really been considered? So they've considered the the virtue and the vanity of the law, but not actually considered the real-world consequence? Oh, look, that's so true, Marie. I mean, we see this in sports policies as well, right? That the theory of it sounds lovely, you know, inclusion and all the rest of it. But when you put that into practice, you see Leah Thomas and you see the implications of Leah Thomas, which was the US swimmer that was that basically was a mediocre male swimmer in the NCAA, which is the college competition over there, transferring over to the female division and winning an NCAA final and basically using the females' changing rooms. And if any of the females said anything, basically they were threatened that they would be out of the squad. So, yeah, it hasn't been considered at all. I think everyone, we naturally want to be kind and inclusive, right, because we want everybody to have the right to feel safe and secure and to be able to play sport or swim or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. But we do need to ensure that we still look after the fairness and the safety of females because we have those spaces for very good biological reasons. One of the things that changed when I started reading more on these gender issues, and we share a mutual friends, so that's how she she boned me up on a lot of these things, excuse the pun. And she and one of the things I hadn't realized, because I know some transsex people, and they went through a full long process that lasted a number of years. And they had both hormonal and surgical transition that was guided and counseled. Have no trouble with that whatsoever. They're good people. Um, What I didn't realize with a lot of the gender ideology today is that the vast majority don't actually take those steps. They uh, self-identify or they have an identified change in gender. And that's where it ends. Uh, Physically, they're still the biological sex that they were born with. So from what I understand, Leah Thomas was walking around with his meat and potatoes and um, no melons to see anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So by far, the majority don't have any surgical intervention at all now. But you don't even have to have a medical intervention now. It can just be how you want to identify. It's what you say. It's all about feelings. It's nothing to do with facts. You know, we talk about um, changing rooms and stuff, but there's even there's even places that are, are worse than this, where this, this has the ability to create real harms for women. You know, care providers for your elderly mother or a disabled female you're going to have to make sure that if you know somebody, like if your mother or you know a disabled sister or family member needs a female carer, that you insist that they must be biological female. Because you can imagine if a male came in and you had a disabled woman or an elderly woman who couldn't verbalise if there were problems, that like it could just be an absolute disaster. And how uncomfortable would they feel and not being able to express that? There's also kids' school toilets and changing rooms as well. You know, we've just we. It feels like you know we for years we really worked on safeguarding female spaces, safeguarding our young girls, and now we have chucked that all out the window with this gender ideology. 
So at schools, you need to make sure that you talk to the, you know, the principal there to make sure that the girls have female-only toilets and changing rooms to use because otherwise what happens is girls start withholding liquid so they don't have to go to the toilet or they'll hold on, which leads to urinary tract infections, or they'll actually leave the school to find a toilet where they feel safe. And this is actually happening in New Zealand now. Playing devil's advocate, there are some journalists that are calling this the dog bites man situation, where there are a few incidences that have been reported and been over-exaggerated in the media in order for, they call them anti-trans activists or pro-women supporters, to try and strengthen their position. How many issues or encounters are being reported, or is it one of those things like sexual assaults, for example, the vast majority go unreported, you don't hear anything about it, and it's only until you have the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and something truly dire has happened that you find out about it? Yeah, so for a start, I would say the media refuse to report anything. So that's very rich of them to say that, you know, there's only a few things reported because, you know, we've tried to send them information on things that have happened and they refuse to acknowledge them or report on them or do any investigation into them whatsoever. I would say it's very much like the sexual assault thing. I would say that most in, most people will just feel really, really uncomfortable and leave and stop using those spaces. And we know of that happening already. Yeah, it's just, you know, unfortunately, the inclusion of males in female spaces and places excludes females. We don't feel comfortable. And what we should not be doing is teaching our young children not to be aware of safeguarding issues as well by putting male bodies in their spaces when they're younger and teaching them that that's okay because then their guard's down. And if there is an issue, how are they ever going to know, you know, that that normal fear won't be there that would actually keep them out of that that particular situation? Yeah, I think a lot of it too is the fear of speaking out and being called anti-trans or a transphobe. I mean, we all saw what happened at Let Women Speak event in Auckland and just how malign, you know, anyone that comes out against all of this is. This is pro-woman, it's not anti-trans. You know, we want trans to have their space as well. But it seems like that it's only their feelings that are considered and the feelings of everybody else now are just inconsequential. Traditionally, when it was genders were being switched, it was most often male transitioning to female. Now, I, from what I understand, it's now actually come back the other way. It's almost like a social contagion where women, young women, are now wanting to transition to become young men. And this is often where the puberty blockers start coming into play. You have social transitioning first, but once medical transitioning happens... It happens at a time that things cannot be reversed. Are you hearing of of these sorts of things where yeah. these social oh, transitions and medical transitions are starting to happen with dire consequences? Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It really is. I mean, you know, we've always had social contagions with young females. When I was young, it was bulimia and anorexia, and I got caught up in that. Then it went to cutting, and now we've got trans. And unfortunately, in female friend groups, if one or two people within that group start doing that it is contagious around the group it's like the girls all sort of come in and support each other and end up doing a similar thing and so you do get a lot of social contagion but we're also teaching girls now like puberty is terrible right did any of us enjoy going through female puberty it totally sucked right we are now telling kids they can opt out of that and it's all fine they can just make it go away as if like magic like if we'd had that choice marie when we were younger we probably would have gone yeah 
whoa, that sounds great. I don't want to have a period and I don't want my breasts to grow and all of that awful stuff. And so we're actually telling telling kids a lie and it's having profound impact on them. The only only hope is that we've seen recently the NHS in the UK has basically no longer offers puberty blockers to kids unless it's through clinical trial. They've completely stopped it. It's also been stopped in Norway, Finland and Sweden, which were some of the first countries that really pushed this gender ideology because they've all seen that it is actually really dangerous to kids. Like the impact it has on their bodies, it doesn't just stop their puberty and then when they go off them, their puberty starts again. They don't ever get that growth back. So if you're a little boy that's put on puberty blockers, the penis will never grow past the point it is when they go on puberty blockers, which <laughs> it's just unbelievable. With yeah, with it stops the bone density, bone growth, brain growth. It's just appalling. And the majority of kids that go into puberty blockers, they get put on this pathway to transition that then involves cross-sex hormones. And once young girls go onto cross-sex hormones, onto testosterone, their voice deepens forever. They grow hair. They pretty much can go into early menopause. They could become infertile. Many of them don't ever enjoy an orgasm in their whole entire life. These kids can't consent to this when they're teenagers. They just can't. We all know that they don't have the cognitive ability to do so. And I just can't understand why we're pretending that this is all okay. Yeah, and then there's the two elements in terms of affirmation. You know, schools are told that they must affirm someone's self-chosen gender identification, which as we've seen recently with the teacher, the maths teacher, that has another whole set of consequences. One of the things that I find really disturbing, having spoken to educators that have got kids that identify this way, is often it's a chicken and egg when you've got parents who are very invested in the ideology. Is this something that the children are doing in order to please and satisfy the parents or are the parents living their lives vicariously through their children? It's, I mean, I've seen that too, and that's really quite frightening. I haven't seen it in New Zealand, but I have seen it online, like over in the States, where it is very scary, like transing their kids when they're still little kids. <laughs> How do they know? I mean, like little boys love dress ups, you know, like my kids used to quite often dress up in, you know, girls clothes and boys clothes. I despair at the fact that what we're doing is rather than being inclusive inclusive of all this diversity is now we're narrowing people down to really old fashioned stereotypes. And if you don't fit a box, then apparently you're not right and we must change you. Welcome to the world of critical theory, because critical theory is all about applying you into a very self-defined label. And then within that label, you fall into one of two groups, which is either being a victim, uh, an oppressor or oppressed, essentially. And within that, there is a totem. And funnily enough, uh, trans is right at the top of the totem. So depending on what box you tick, trans will sort of outwoke anything else along the box. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of this critical gender theory has become so popular, because it allows you the greatest amount of power within that social paradigm. And it is certainly something that we're seeing. And it's creating a schism too. There is definitely a schism amongst the LGB community, amongst the trans and the rest of the community. Uh, They're certainly seeing it. And some of the most vocal opponents of this uh, ideology are lesbian women because they are seeing their 
themselves very much threatened. Oh, totally. We even had our human rights commissioner tell lesbian women that there's no such thing as same-sex attracted anymore. It's same-gender attracted. So essentially, same-sex attraction doesn't exist. Or if if it does, then they're homophobic or transphobic. You know, it's it is just completely and utterly nuts. It is nuts. Now, you mentioned uh, Leah Thomas earlier before. There has been Senate hearings in the United States around this. Riley Gaines, uh, who was the swimmer that came second to Leah Thomas, has become quite a vocal activist in this space. Have you been following those hearings at all? Not closely, but I did um, hear Riley. Riley actually tied with Leah Thomas in an event, and Leah was given the trophy and allowed to have all the photos. And Riley was told that one would be sent to her after the event. So this is a female event, right? This is the pinnacle of Riley's whole college, like her last year at college. And she basically podiums in an event, but because she tied with Leah, Leah, the male, was prioritised over the female in her own event. It was appalling. But I did hear um, there was a somebody, a human rights person on one of the um, events that you were just talking about, and she was asked, is it fair? And she was saying that um, oh, Serena and Venus Williams, you know, no male could beat them. And it's like, oh, my God, the 203rd ranked male tennis player played them and completely thrashed them. And luckily, Riley yeah, pulled her up on that and said, well, actually, that's completely incorrect. So I have seen a bit of it. Yeah, yeah. she's a legend. I'm actually going to be meeting her in about, oh, just under a month. I'm going to the um, the 2023 International Summit on Women's Sport in Denver, Colorado. And there are some amazing women. Paula Scanlon, who was another swimmer that was in Leah's Penn team as well and forced to share changing rooms with them too. She's going to be speaking as well. Sharon Davies from the UK is coming over as well. There's going to be some incredible people there. So I'm really looking forward to it. How many trans athletes are actually competing currently in the New Zealand sphere? It's so hard to know, Marie, because sports will not disclose it. You know, we know, I think there's three that we know of in cycling. One of them has won over $8,000 worth of female prize money and podium positions in the last couple of years. There's another one that has um, won three of the female trophies for the club, their club last year. And I had a really long chat with a female that actually cycled at that club, and she said most of the women have left now. Rowing is another sport that I wonder would be affected by this because it's one that is such a you know a power based sport. I'm waiting for those first rowers because I think there are some trans rowers internationally but we haven't yet seen them in this country and with rowing being one of our blue ribbon sports here I do wonder whether at the moment we're seeing them in fringe sports in this country but what happens when we have players that are wanting to break into or males wanting to identify in sports like rugby where that could become dangerous could it not? Well I understand that there are some males playing women's rugby in New Zealand. We haven't been given the details of them, but we have been told there are some. You know, the New Zealand Rugby Union, so they're the ones that started off the whole process that led to Sport New Zealand developing their guiding principles for transgender participation because the New Zealand Rugby Union rejected World Rugby's transgender guidelines, which said that they could not compete in female competition due to health and safety reasons. Like there was a 20 to 30% increase of injury if a male was on the field in a female game. And I couldn't believe it when New Zealand Rugby Union rejected it. But what happened is when World Rugby brought out their um, policy, there was a coordinated campaign by trans activists to every rugby union around the world, and they all became fearful of it. 
And so they said, oh, no, no, we can't accept that. We'll develop something that's right for New Zealand. So the NZRU went to um, Sport New Zealand and said, look, we need some funding to help with this. And Sport New Zealand said, well, if we're going to fund that, we'll develop guidelines for all sport alongside. But they knew the outcome before they even started because just before they had placed a transgender, Sport New Zealand had placed transgender guidelines, just a one-pager on their website. Then all of a sudden they pulled them and then they went through this really long-winded, expensive process to come up with exactly the same guidelines as they had before, but they were just over 12 pages and, and it had a whole lot of crap on them as well. So New Zealand Rugby Union, as we understand it, have been, we've managed to delay them announcing this because they wanted this policy out almost two years ago now. They've been consulting on it ever since, but we understand that it's self-ID as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see if they have the courage to bring it out or whether they're just flying under the radar and allowing it quietly and hoping nobody notices. Again, the ripple effect. I mean, what happens when you have an injury in rugby and the outcome is someone who is physically superior due to the accident of their birth? Yeah, I think in the US there was a game of rugby last weekend and three girls got injured with a a male on the field that were pulled off. Yeah. It It is quite scary. If people are wanting to find out more information around this, especially around sport, A, where can they find information? And B, if they are seeing this in their own sports clubs, so they've got themselves are playing, they've got daughters playing, they have concerns, what can they do? They can raise them confidentially with us. They can either email us or through our website or contact us via Facebook. All correspondence will be completely confidential because we understand the issues around, you know, coming forward publicly. But if you wanted to come forward publicly, we would love that because the more people that do, the more confidence it gives to others to do the same. Right now that we all have this fear of speaking out because we've seen the backlash that happens to those that do, but that only remains when the majority of us stay quiet. And we know the majority of us agree. We did some polling, when was it, about February or March. And, you know, by far the majority of people do not agree with males participating in female sport and being in female changing rooms. We just have to give them the courage to speak up. But if they don't want to, they can definitely get in touch with us. We have a database that we're keeping of everyone that, and basically that shares their stories with us so that we can build on that. Now, with the Sex South ID legislation, one thing they have said they're going to do is in five years' time, like they're going to monitor it and in five years' time decide whether they need to change it or not. I have no idea how they monitor how many girls are no longer going to play sport because they don't feel comfortable on the field or in their changing rooms. Like, how do you research and analyse that? It just, yeah, how many how many women ex- exclude themselves from female spaces and places because they don't feel safe? But we need to try to work out how we can hold them to account with that. Mm. So those details again, Save Women's Sport Australasia, what is the website address? Yeah, it's savewomensport.com or .co.nz. Our Facebook page is just Save Women's Sport Australasia. We're on Twitter as well. So you'll be able to just find us just by Googling googling us but yeah definitely if you know of anything please please get in touch because the the more information that we have like we can just keep building this database and we can use that to try to push the government to reverse this or to provide better protections 
That's fantastic. This is Roe Edge from Save Women's Sports Australasia. If you've got any questions or queries or feedback for us here around this interview, make sure you contact us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Or text us. That number is 2057. Roe, thank you very much for your time this morning. We will definitely stay in touch because this is an evolving issue and I think it's something that we need to continue putting a spotlight on because no one else in the media seems to be doing it other than us thank you so much for your time don't go away still more here to come with reality check radio and counterculture you're listening to counterculture on rcr reality check radio you're with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and joining me now is Catherine, who reached out to us several weeks ago through inbox at realitycheck.radio, and she has a very interesting story to tell. And good morning, Catherine. How are you? Oh, good morning. Yeah, um, I'm well. You reached out to us, and let us know why yeah. you contacted us. Well, with all this work stuff going around and all these so-called trans people jumping up and down and what triggered it basically was the disgusting way that um, Posey Parker got treated. That was just appalling. I just need people to know that in my informed, slightly informed opinion, these people are suffering from a social contagion. This shouldn't be happening. The problem is that it's, it's become a self-generating thing in our universities and schools and spreading and it alarms me. People do need to know that there is a condition called transsexualism and it's of genetic biological origin. Every fetus, when it's formed, if it has a Y chromosome, it has the potential to be male. The default condition is female. If nothing happens to it, you get an XY person born with a completely functional female body. Often they don't find out unless they have a karyotype test. In my case, it was only partial. I did have some physical abnormalities, but they weren't particularly gross. This one was one you couldn't see, which was in the head, in the brain. I was just wired to be a girl. We're just going to back up a little bit for our listeners. So this is your unique perspective because you are somebody who is genuinely wired to be a female. But Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so walk us through how that started for you. Well, gosh, it's a long story. Um, <laughs> looking back on it, I was a quite strange little boy, I guess. I tended to keep to myself and I always got along with girls much better than boys for some reason until puberty hit, which was a total nightmare, of course. It is for people like us because we always hope that it'll somehow come right, but it doesn't, of course, you know. So you do what society wants you to do and you do the best you can as you do if you... I mean, I was lucky. I had a very, very happy and loving home I grew up in. So... I didn't have the trauma that I know some people like me that I know have been through with parents that um, were very intolerant of any deviation from what they saw as strict maleness, you know. I was allowed to pretty much do what I liked, you know, so I could iron and sew and uh, I tried to teach myself to knit, but I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> I also did, did guy things as well because all my peer group did, you know. You get along as best you can. I mean, I grew up in the 1940s and 50s in post-war Britain, and it was a fairly constrained society in that sort of way. I did wonder at one point if I might be gay, but I'm not really, because one's sexual orientation seems quite a 
an independent thing from your actual self-identity. It seems to me to be that way because it's so hard to look back on it because, you know, how do you remember how you felt in that abstract sort of way, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago? It's, it's hard to say. I got through life, I actually, I was married for quite a long time. I have three children. And that eventually um, didn't work. I don't think I was ideal husband and father material by any stretch of the imagination. But anyway, once I had no dependence, you know, um, my children were grown and, and had, you know, were completely independent and had lives of their own, I was able to sort of look to myself and, and find out if the feelings that I had had any real foundation in fact you know one does a little research talk to your doctor go and see a psychologist make sure i'm not nutty (laughs) and i and i found out i discovered much to my delight that there is actually a reason i felt the way that i did and that's a limited something could be done about it i've got the same gender that i was born with i haven't changed my gender nobody can change their gender so the concept is ridiculous um i've got the gender that i was born with all i've done is make my old body fit it a bit better. And that makes me much more comfortable every day. That must have been a tremendous relief to find that out, Catherine. It was, actually, because I felt felt alone. I always felt that I was sort of outside of life looking in on it, if you know what I mean. I always felt sort of isolated. I was never able to really contact with people on, on an emotional level like I can now. I'm closer to at least well, two of my children anyway. I'm closer to them now than I've ever been because they know who I am and so do I. And that's cool, you know, mm-hmm. and just bless them because it must have been very hard for them. I'm not sure how I'd have handled it if my father had done what I did. I'm not sure they'd have handled it at all well. So, you know, the, the, the condition actually springs from, you know, way before you're born. It's the fact that, you know, my, my zygote was not, well, it had androgens delivered, but the genes that control your sensitivity to andro- androgens in the womb are on your X chromosome, and everyone has one of those. And mine are lazy, and they didn't respond properly to it. So I had some genital abnormalities, and I had this girl-wired brain when I was born. Um, but the genital abnormalities were very small and were obviously not remarked upon, but they were there. You know, quite often it goes as far as a condition called hyperspadia, which, you know, usually needs surgery to correct it. But, you know, I wasn't that bad and everything seemed to work. And uh, as I say, this was 1942. (laughs) Different world then, you know. Oh, and how old were you when uh, you sort of went through your transition? I was, I started it about 24 years ago. Yeah, quite late in life, you know. I sort of waited till I had no other entanglements with people because I knew that it would be a difficult thing. And if I was in any kind of relationship with anybody, um, it would be devastating for them. So, And I didn't know what could be done, you know, um, how much it would cost. Yeah. So, <laughs> you have so to you... wait till you're in a, a social and psychological and financial position to be able to do something about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's incredibly selfless of you as well, you know, to consider all those other factors. Well, having children is, is a, it's a contract. I was taught on my mother's knee that your word is your bond. It doesn't matter if it's on a document or if you signed it or not. If you give your word, you keep it. I took my vows very, very seriously. So, you know, you fulfil those before you do something for yourself. Mm. That's just 
just the way I was raised, I guess. I had wonderful parents. <laughs> um, just, just the kind of person I am, I suppose. I've, I've always thought that, you know, one's personal integrity is one of the most important things in life, you know. The thing that seems to be lacking so often now is, is honour and integrity. What happened to it? It's gone the way of those daily social protocols like please and thank you and let me hold that door for you and all the other little things, the, the, the grease on civilization's axle. You think what, what's happened to everybody? I certainly can agree with that. I mean, good manners can get you a very long way. This woke thing that's going on, you know, with all these ridiculous pronouns, you know, all I can say is these people, the vast majority of them, I'm sure among them are, are a few people like me who are wandering around in bewildered circles, wondering which way is up. Look, we have statistics about this. About one in 30,000 people are like me, male to female transsexuals. So in New Zealand, there should be around about 170 of us, my mental arithmetic tells me. Um, some, of course, will be babies. Some, of course, will be old people. So there'll be even less than that in the middle. Where are all these hundreds, thousands of people claiming to be trans of some sort coming from? And I think they're the victim of a social contagion where you can suddenly be special by claiming to want to be the other gender. I believe in America, in some schools, 10% of the children have said they want to be the other gender. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, there's going to be some very unhappy young people when they find out what they've done to themselves and it can't be undone. And, you know, I, I only know two people that managed to learn the right narrative and talk their way through the old filters that we had 20 years ago that everybody demanded be dispensed with. And both of them are dead from suicide. Neither of them, as far as I know, had any surgery. They'd just been on hormones for a few years and then tried to knock it off and they just fell apart. Mm. And it was dreadful. It was dreadful. You know, poor guys, they, they just got this thing in their head and they managed to tell the right lies to all the people and, and get through the system. But, um, and I know a few people that got rejected by the system, you know, got very irate about it. But as I said at the time, if I have a delusion, I want to find out about it and get it fixed before I do anything permanent, like getting my plumbing rearranged, you know. And so where's people's rational thinking, their objectivity, you know, you've got to you've got to be objective about yourself, and I know that's hard when, when, when it's a deep emotional level where you're right down at self identity, and and I think a lot of people possibly don't have the intellect for it, but I don't know. I, I try not to judge my fellow beings harshly, but some of them do seem awfully unthinking. You know, mm -hmm. um, what do you do? What can we do about all these young people that are? all self-righteous and, and full of indignation about, you know, the way the world won't accept them as they are. Well, we are a sexually dimorphic species. There are basically two genders. Um, there is a very small number of people who are truly in the middle, one or the other, and they've got the weirdest chromosomes, XXY, which is Kleinfelter syndrome. And there are dozens of others, but uh, they're very, very rare birds indeed. I don't know. How do we... How do we break this cycle of generation when even schools are not telling parents that they think their child is what are they call transgender. That word transgender, in fact, was coined by a drag queen, funnily enough, who called himself Virginia Prince many years ago. And I think was trying to get a little bit of 
the cred that transsexuals had, and that's that's when they, that's when the word came into being. I don't mind being called transsexual, not even a tranny. I don't mind. That's what I am. You know, how can we get out of this? That is the question of the ages, Catherine, and I know that it's certainly something that keeps me awake at night, not just for trans uh, ideology and gender ideology, but also racial ideologies and... critical race theory and all of that. And the government's encouraging this. Do they want people to hate each other? We had a country where everyone was equal under the law and we all got along and and a few of us were a little bit different. Oh, that's okay. I mean, the, the women's spaces. I mean, people like me have no business in women's sport. None at all. Mm. You know, and as has been proven with, with people like um, Leah Thomas, the swimmer, and, and, and others, men and women are different. Once you've been through male puberty, um, you can't undo... Some of that. God, I wish you could. (laughs) But you can't, you know. I'm fairly fortunate. I'm only five foot seven and a half and not built too much like a brick outhouse, so I don't frighten the horses too much. But nevertheless, you know, what are people doing? Why why do they all of all of these people that are in women's sport are men that weren't very good as men and that they they seem to Mm. want to want to go and beat all the girls. It's going to it's going to wipe out women's sport if it's allowed to continue. And I, I believe the International Athletic Federation has said anyone that's been through male puberty can't enter women's sport. And people, well, that's that's at least in athletics and track and field. But um, I mean, there's plenty of other sports where men and women compete on equal terms. You know, my, my favourite thing, which is you know um, shooting clay birds and, and and targets and things. Having been an instructor, um, girls actually learn it very quickly and become very good at it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, people are so unreasonable, you know. I mean, just because us, what I call us old school trannies, we'd reached a, a pitch in society where we got our transition done. We merged back into society kind of on the distaff side. I've, I've been invited to women-only groups. They honour me probably more than I deserve, and accepted as one of them. And there, you know, there are limitations to that. Of course, there are, sport is one of them. You know, I don't, I don't want to be in, in a communal changing room and have someone disrobe and, you know, I don't want to see willies um, dangling around. I don't care what they think they are. You stay out of places like that. Mm. If you really think you are really transsexual, well, go and do something about it. Short of going into a women's toilet when, you know, before you've had your surgery, and I had to do that, um, whereupon you you behave with the utmost decorum, and I never had a problem. Because um, in a women's toilet, nobody knows what's in your pants because you're in the store. And, um, yeah, so I, I never had the least problem. But I'm expecting now that, because I'm not too hard to read, I'm expecting now that, you know, I can likely be thrown out of such places, you know, mm. because of what's been going on. And I can see why, you know, mm. these people are, what do we do about it? How can we change it? Well, that's one of the goals that we have here with Reality Check Radio is to continue to have these courageous conversations. And hopefully, mm. as you said, people aren't thinking critically like they once were. And hopefully we're able to give them 
a well-rounded view of the full story. And that's why it's, I just really appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk to me because it allows us oh, to okay. see both sides of the story. And that's the thing whilst you're, I mean, I agree with you fully. I do believe that there is a strong social contagion element mm. with the current gender ideology. The statistics are there. Traditionally, it is more likely for uh, there to be a male to female transition whereas now those numbers have completely inverted and it's almost uh, like well, that's, that's a, right. a social um, contagion females of young girls. Guys, mm -hmm. um, are a couple of orders of magnitude more unusual and so there's very good biological reasons for that you know because the default condition of of humans is female chromosomes aren't the whole story and without a prod in the womb, everyone would come out female, mm. you know. That's an idea that I think a lot of men sort of bridle at somewhat, um, but it's a biological fact, you know. You know, guys are, guys are girls with alterations, <laughs> which is putting it fairly bluntly, but sometimes the process of making a boy is incomplete or mm. sometimes absent altogether. Mm. And um, you get people like me, but it doesn't happen very often. No. You know, it's, it's just a genetic accident. Mm. The problem is, of course, that it's it's heritable because um, my daughter or my daughters carry my X chromosome because I only have one as far as I know. They got one from their mother and one from me because they're double X, so they're girls. Um, but the problem is they also inherit my X with those lazy androgen receptor genes. They can pass that on to their male children. You know, I hope it's milled out. I don't know. We'll see. Mm, exactly. And it's all about this greater understanding. So, look, thank you so much for giving us your time because I think that this is really important perspective. It is actually important to hear the, mm. another side of the story. Welcome, it's, it's good to know that somebody's, somebody's onto it and is saying something about it. You know, if, if, if ever I can help, you've got my number, just, just ring me. No oh, problem. Catherine, that you're an absolute gem. I thank you so much. <laughs> I really do appreciate it. Do stay tuned with us here at Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. We've got more I great will. content to come. Woke Word of the Week and, of course, Marty with Media Matters all here on Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are with Counterculture. I am Marie. My next guest is Pastor Peter Mortlock from City Impact Church. I'm really delighted to talk to you this morning. Peter, how are you? Great. Thank you, Maria. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your program. Yes, I'm great. Thank you. Excellent. Now, first, tell me a little bit about the evolution of City Impact Church. Sure. Well, uh, 41 years ago now, which is a chunk of time, isn't it? A bit of a lifetime ago. Um, as a young 33-year-old, um, I, I, if I just simply say, uh, God called me and uh, he put a call in my heart. And so my wife and I planted City Impact Church. We started out in Browns Bay, just in a little uh, 
hall from council, St Anne's Hall. Uh, they gave it to us free in those days, which was nice. But uh, And so we planted church and had about 40 people come along, put an ad in the paper, and away we went. And to some degree, the rest is history. But all I can say is God's been very, very, very good to us on the journey. And now we see you know, our church obviously uh, reaching around the world in, in various ways, which we may get into. Um, and so it began really with what I would call a call of God. Mm. Mm. And what are some of the greatest things that you look back at at that time and you think I, you're really, it blows you away that you've been able to achieve in that time? Yeah. What are some of the highlights? Well, I, I, I tell the story that um, I remember my, my mother-in-law who was actually married to a Presbyterian minister and uh, I remember saying to her, you know, I don't feel ready. And she said, you know, if you wait till you're ready, you'll never get around to it, right? And so I was a very successful real estate salesman back then. I was selling new housing. I was New Zealand's top new housing salesman uh, for seven years running. Um, but prior to that, um, prior to me getting saved when I was 21, I had a very wild, misspent youth, had about 40 jobs by the time I was 20. So I've been around a bit, but I... I I had a very bad speech impediment when I was young. I couldn't really speak to the age I was five completely. Then from five to seven, I started so badly that nobody could understand me. And so I was brought up in Taranaki. I'm just a, a simple guy from Taranaki, is what I say. Uh, brought up in a small town, Stratford, born in Hara. And so I, like most Kiwis back then, you know, you ate wheat bricks and rode horses and swam, played rugby and all those things. And I did all those things. Never dreamed that I would be, first of all, in, in the big city of Auckland, because I'm not a city person, but likewise preaching to thousands of people, having a television program that screens around the world in 232 countries, having churches around the world, orphanages in India and so forth, so forth. And, and so, you know, what God's done in and through my life has been quite miraculous because I could say, but and not with a false humility, but with all uh, humbleness. You know, it certainly hasn't been my brilliance that's done it. Uh, obviously, great people have come along and joined the vision and uh, been able to help me with that journey to bring about all that we, we see today. You know? mm. Let's actually head down that direction of what you've achieved, because when I had a look at your website, which is very good, by the way, um, having someone that I work in a little bit in that space, your website right. is most excellent. I was amazed at how much work and outreach that you have achieved in that time, as you mentioned, in multiple countries, but also to what I call the parallel structures. So for many of us in recent times, we've become increasingly frustrated with governance and how our communities are starting, and we are looking at ways to find our own path and go our own way, whereas you've been doing that now for decades. So what are some of the th things that you do from both a community and outreach perspective in places such as India and Vietnam and the like? Sure. Um, we have campuses in, as you say, in India. I think we've got about 67 campuses in India, uh, two orphanages. And so we support those campus passes because obviously they're in places where they're not able to support their own income. Uh, we help with buildings, put up buildings for them and so forth. So likewise in Tonga, uh, Philippines, Mexico, uh, and uh, a variety of other places. We have 42 medical clinics in, in China. 
we built the medical clinic and we stock it. Uh, we got three in Miramar and I think four or five in Nepal. We just built a new one in, in Nepal as well. And so these are in very rugged um, places that are hard to get to where there's no medical help for these people. And so they're connected to a local church that helps them obviously spiritually as well as physically. Um, and so as we go in there and we, we, we buy the land and build the building, and stuck it with medical supplies. We also have had teams of doctors go to these places, and so they will, um, you know, see hundreds of patients, obviously, um, in that time that they're there. And um, so we not only do a lot of community work abroad, but but likewise here in New Zealand. Um, for example, we just did a, a blanket and pyjama drive. We gave out 10,000 blankets, pyjamas, 10,000, which is quite a lot for one church to do. Uh, a lot of it went in, in, well, went right across the city, um, a lot in South Auckland, obviously, because we've got campuses there. Um, but we also have what we call Community Impact Days. So four days a year, we mobilise the church and we get hundreds of volunteers coming out and we will go into homes uh, of whether it's disabled people, uh, grandchildren bring up grandchildren, people who need help. And we work with other social agencies. Uh, we have we have people employed on staff, of course, full time just for this role. And uh, Mary Kath, who's very well known in this this area, she works with other social agencies. And often we're given referrals that nobody else can help or nobody else wants to help. Um, we've had uh, houses that people have been hoarding for years. Just You possibly have seen them on uh, Not Ours mm -hmm. on TV, because, but, you know, like that where the house is just stacked with stuff, we'll go and clean them out sensitively and um, we we paint houses. We, uh, we, we'll do the, the grounds often. We make over. Um, sometimes we put in a new kitchen and carpet, but normally it's more cosmetic and, you know, mm -hmm. with groundwork and so forth. So on one Saturday, we will do over 70 houses, which, you know, sounds a lot. Um, and so we have teams, mobilised teams into those areas. It was all, it's all scope of works. It's all sorted out and done out. And uh, and not only that, we'll go and help other childcare centres. We used to go to the hospital and um, we'd go to the Waitakere Hospital and North Shore Hospital, but the health and safety regulations have become so, so horrendous to work in those organisations. We used to be able to clean the hospital beds and everything, um, and even though they're such short staff, but now, for example, this is how ridiculous, you know, I know you possibly bring up wokeism, but how ridiculous is this? We go in there and we put up all the Christmas decorations. We did it for uh, over a decade at the North Shore Hospital. All the Christmas decorations throughout all the wards. We have registered electricians on site uh, in the church, but we were not allowed to plug in the Christmas lights to test them. I mean, you know, I mean, this is like it just got so ridiculously hard. Obviously, you know, ladders and, and anything like that, just to, you know, put up a bit of tinsel. And so um, we don't no longer do that. But we went into um, palliative care units, built TV units in the hospitals and all that sort of thing. So, so yeah, our community days are pretty well known. And, and obviously, you know, it's a credit to the people that come out and, and give of their time to do that. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, Christian entities have always been very strong in the charitable space and you're experts at it. What do you see are some of the areas where government is failing socially? Like government will work with some organisations but not others. Have you just gotten to a point where you look at where they're failing and go, you know what, we're going to go our own way and fill those gaps? Or do you work cooperatively with them? Or do you just, 
uh, heavy road networks. As I said, yeah, we do work with other social agencies and, and some government social a- agencies. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, if you find a need and meet it and find a hurt and heal it. And so obviously as um, Bible-believing Christians, you know, we not only want to share the good news of Christ, which is ultimately, you know, the the, the main um, thrust of our ministry because it's not much, if, if I said it's not much good sending um, well-fed people to hell in that sense. So obviously to bring them to Christ, to talk about heaven, eternity, you know, that's a, that's a big part of what we do. But likewise, it's not much good just saying to a person, God bless you if they're hungry and you, you don't feed them. So we actually feed thousands of people. We have, a, I forget how many, that, like during COVID, we gave out thousands of meals, uh, like a lot of people did. We obviously, you know, as you say, a lot of churches, that, that, that I, I don't think whether the government's aware or people are aware, if every church, and obviously the Salvation Army are well known for their social services, and so they should be. All credit to them, William Booth, the founder, and so forth, a great man of God. Um but but there's so many other churches that do what we do. Some obviously not as not as large. The larger the churches, the more they should be able to do. Um, like we, uh, when the floods happened down in the Gisborne area, we um, sent three truckload and trailer loads of supplies down there. Worked through a good friend, a pastor down there, Pastor Norm McLeod, and uh, we also hired a helicopter and went into mm-hmm. areas where where uh, you couldn't get a truck into, loaded with supplies as well. And so you know, we we funded all that. Uh, as I said, a small church of thirty people would struggle to do that. I get that, and so it's good to be able to do those things. Um, um, but, you know, we do, as I said, work with other agencies. But I, I think, you know, it's a bottomless bucket, uh, the needs in New Zealand right now, the poverty, the homelessness, um, you know, uh, families that are struggling. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, no one church obviously is going to meet those needs. And and the government, um, well, we I don't really want to talk about the government right now. <laughs> I just kidding. Um, but, you know, they've got a role to play, obviously. But, um, yeah, the country is in, is in trouble. I think most people are aware of that mm. and there is i've i mean i as i said to you before we got started i'm like what i like to call myself as an open-minded agnostic and right. even for someone like me i have seen what i is as to use a term a demonizing almost of people with christian faith and the christian church within this woke ideology and so the ideology sets everybody else into oppressor or oppressed classes they have this weird structure of how they define people within certain religions and christianity is certainly from their perspective found themselves on the wrong side of the fence how have you seen any impact of wokeism within the church? Because I know in the United States, there's a real battle going on between those who are quite progressive thinking within the church versus those who are quite conservative leaning. And and obviously there's a lot of issues here. I mean, you know, the whole critical race theory, the colonialism, uh, the LGBT thing. There's just so many different issues today um, that, you know, can generate uh, misunderstanding towards Christians and uh, particularly ones who want to uh, believe the Bible. And um, and it's, it's not just uh, in New Zealand, it's, it's globally. I mean, Jesus did say, of course, that, you know, there would be persecution, particularly in the latter days. And Christianity has been persecuted over the years, as a lot of some other religions have as well. Um, but Christianity, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like when 
when people bang their hand with a hammer, they don't say all oh, Buddha or Krishna mm. or, or or Muhammad. They say all oh, Jesus. You know, like mm. there's something about that name. I mean, I can I can go into a pub, a hotel, talk about anything, and and if I bring up Jesus, all of a sudden there's a reaction. You know, because we do live in a spiritual world. We, we are far more spiritually a spiritual person than he we I know we focus a lot on the material and on the on the outer you know we spend a lot of time in the mirror combing the hair and and all that kind of stuff but we are a spirit being we're a tripartite being we've got a body we've got a soul we've got a spirit our soul is our mind will and our emotion but our spirit and soul live forever our body dies and go to the ground I mean you say you're agnostic which I appreciate but you know if you just step out of the star if you just step out one night go out and look at the starry sky Look up because the heavens say they display the glory of God. And you look up at them. Everybody asks themselves, where did I come from? Where am I going? What is there to life? There's got to be more to life than this and uh, than just eating and drinking and being merry. And so everybody asks those big questions. Now, sometimes people just want to ignore them, shove them down and just, you know, <laughs> just uh, kind of pretend they don't exist. But, you know, when everybody attends a funeral, for example, um, they know there's a, a big issue and that everybody's going to face death. And obviously, if you know where you're going, when you go, it's not the big issue that for some people, it's not the fear that some people have of it. So, so I think that... Um, you know, today we live in a very secular society, unfortunately. Helen Clark, who did um, social engineer our country, and she declared up in Waitangi uh, a decade ago now, you know, our, our New Zealand no longer a Christian nation, uh, but a secular nation. And New Zealand was based on Christian values, Christian principles. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the in fact, the whole Western world, that's why the Western world was blessed. I mean, you look at the whole universities, doc, uh, you know, um, hospitals, education. It was all Christians at the forefront of that. And so to try to do away with the Christian history, which a lot of people want to do, is unbelievably ridiculous, you know. Are you seeing a rewriting of history? I think there are a lot of people who would like to rewrite history. Uh, I think we've got some history in New Zealand who people would like to re re rewrite. As a, I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, I grew up in New Zealand, which was, I felt, racially harm, harmonious. Um, you know, I grew up, obviously, in the 50s, 60s. You didn't have to lock your car. You didn't have to lock your house. Everybody got on with one another. There's maybe one murder a year, like the crew murder that was so world famous, so famous. Um, you know, these ram raids that we see today. And, and of course, also, you know, we could talk about three three waters. We could talk about, you know, the the, the, the the signs they want to put on the roads and all these things. And they're very divisive for people. And so, unfortunately, you know, people are becoming um, uh, racist. And, and, people, and there's, you, know, you know, there's backlash and so forth. And it's such a shame and it's so sad to see um, that that people are polarizing around these issues where, you know, as I said, we all bleed red, you know, every one of us. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christianity brought a lot to this nation. Uh, Mary's had a tremendous revival, um, you know, when Samuel Marsden was here. And uh, so, you know, obviously things are changing and it's a brave new world. It's, mm -hmm. it's happened since COVID, of course. You know, they well, they said, hey, you know, the new, the brave new world, they talked about the new normal and all these kind of things and we see it unfolding before our eyes and and so global globalization is on the agenda for anybody's got their ears open and it's it's in many ways and many factors and and uh you know so it's, it's going to be mm. it's, it's going to be very interesting I've, I've said to the church um because you know i'm a pretty obviously um 
um, what can I say? I won't say strong in the sense, but you know, we know what we believe, right? And I say there's going to be three uh, things that face face um, that we have to face, and they'll be challenging. And of course, uh, AI will be one of those things. AI will change the world in the next ten years, like like perhaps we don't realise today. You know. Mm. You mentioned Brave New World before. Have you read Brave New World? My I did answer. years ago before I was a Christian, actually, Huxley's book, but George L. Wellen. I mean, obviously, you know, they were quite prophetic in what they mm. said. We see it Exceptionally. Come, we see it come to pass, you know. But the Bible also, of course, is a prophetic book. And so you don't have to read the book of Revelation. And, um, you know, we know how all this ends up. I mean, you know, what's happening today, even in the world, is, is written in the pages of the Bible. And, of course, you know, I guess if you believe in, in the mark of the beast, 666, and the Antichrist, you're a conspiracist, aren't you? Until it, you know, they say a conspiracy theory is only only as good as until it comes to come to pass, you know. Yeah, I've, um, the chap that I do, the next piece actually, he comes up um, next. Uh, we talk about quite often build back better, and he's he said those BBBs look very like six six sixes to me. <laughs> so he's... well, the fact that they, I mean, the the thing is, of course, I I don't know, but I was. I, I saw the writing on the wall very early in that, and I just thought there's got there's a global agenda here. Every every world leader, particularly the World Economic Forum leaders, were were singing off the same song sheet, you know, saying the same things, believe the science, and and I think you know when Jacinda Ardern said, um, you know, I am the sole, we are the sole source of truth. Um, everybody should have been very concerned and up, upset about that, and 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 push back on that. For anybody to say that, you know, I mean, uh, it would be fair for me to say that God is a sole source of truth, and the Bible is. Um, but I'm not, you know, I, I make mistakes. I'm just a, a you know a person that has um, got saved, and you know, who's imperfect. But God uses imperfect people, you know. Mm. So I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, but. Um, made some good decisions as well. So let's talk about COVID because COVID was incredibly challenging, especially, and I think one of the things that I hated that transpired during COVID was how using the guise of safety, communities and individuals were separated and forced to be alone. Mm. And I thought that that was one of the cruelest things because we are a social being. And one thing that you provide Mm. is you provide community for so many that that require it. How did you handle that? How did you, as such a large organisation, keep all of your congregation and your people together and provide support? And, and that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, COVID, the vaccine was so divisive, as you know, and that's where I knew where it came from. It came from the pit of hell, anything that divides families, uh, divides churches, divides communities and so forth. We saw some very sad scenes, did we not? Even the Queen, when she was alive at, a, at her husband's funeral sitting by herself. I mean, that was one of the saddest scenes. We saw old people kissing each other through cellophane, um, saying goodbye to each other. We saw, you know, old people dying alone. I mean, let's be honest, they would have rather died with their loved ones around the bed and all catch COVID. You know, I mean, it was just, it was just absolutely um, uh, saddening. And uh, obviously the vaccine, um, you know, a lot of people took it. They, they, they thought they were doing the right thing. They took it to keep their jobs. Um, they took it so they could travel. That didn't work out too well, did it? They, the borders were closed, you know. Um, and uh, I, uh, Jacinda Ardern actually rang 
rang me um, personally to try uh, as a as a church as a pastor of a larger church to, to get me on board with you know their agenda to lock down to segregate congregations and I refused to segregate the congregation. Uh, Jesus would never turn away anyone. Uh, he wouldn't turn away a leper. I mean, obviously, unvaxxed people were kind of like called unclean. That's what lepers were called, right? And so I wasn't prepared to segregate anybody on that on that basis, that's for sure. Um, and unfortunately, I saw a lot of pastors segregating their congregations and, and, and a lot of people got hurt because they felt they were no longer welcome at their church, no longer, um, you know, loved in their church. And, and that was sad. And uh, obviously, we wanted to, um, I mean, we we're Christians. I didn't want to go out of the way and be rebellious to government and not, and I wanted to try to work within their framework. We ended up holding um, rooms of 25 because I wasn't prepared to run vaccinated services because that meant every worker had to be vaccinated. Um, I had nurses and in, in my in, and teachers in in our church who lost their jobs through it. I mean, we had a lot of people that took the vaccine as well, of course. And so um, I wasn't prepared to um, segregate, and so we ran unvaccinated service. So we had to, we had about I think uh, twenty five or thirty rooms with twenty five people in them, and just run those multiple times, sort of thing. Um, and um, you know, we found ways around it. Um, and we, we, I, if I said push the envelope, because you allowed X amount of workers um, uh, in those meetings, and so we had a lot of workers, you know, and so forth. So. I mean, I, I just found the whole thing so sad and it was really about control and fear. I mean, to be honest, today you see people driving around in their car by themselves with the windows up with a mask on. I mean, you know, I often say to people, how thick can you be and still breathe? Why would you? I mean, it just defies logic. And, um, you know, but the fear. And um, so I was very, very strong on the anti-mandates. I mean, the government tried to tell us that 60 teachers refused to take the, take the jab, so they lost their jobs. Now they've come out and said there's 3,000. No wonder our, our teaching, uh, you know, for so, you know, um, are in a mess, and, and likewise the health industry. They still won't allow unvaccinated nurses back and uh, unvaccinated doctors back. A lot of people don't realise that. So, so it's and it's no longer, you know, it's the health authorities now. And so, and and I say to people now. And this is controversial, I guess, but I say to people, because I do a lot of posts about it, I do a lot of, uh, even though I get banned on Facebook all the time, shadow banned and all that kind of stuff, but people can find me on petermortlock.com. But I say to people, look, let's just be honest. A vaccine is supposed to protect you from whatever it is, like TB, polio, they work. But this vaccine did not work. People got vaccinated, they still caught COVID. And mostly, by my research, they caught it worse than people who were unvaccinated. And so, you know, why don't they just admit it didn't work? Why are they still pushing it? And then it was, you know, get vaccinated, you won't pass it on to your loved one. Well, even, even Pfizer admitted that they did no test whatsoever on transmission. So that was just a, a lie. And uh, then it was get vaccinated, you won't get hospitalized. They just kept pushing the boundaries. I mean, Biden, Jacinda, because I got them all on on film, you know, on clips saying these things, you know, oh, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, the COVID's coming, knocking at your door. Even even you're killing, you know, unvaccinated people are killing vaccinated. I mean, it just got crazy. Mm. And, um, and it was all over what should be a voluntary thing to take a medical uh, procedure. And um, I don't care if people got vaccinated or unvaccinated. I wasn't going to discriminate, but it should be an individual choice. And 
and we should not be for it, and coerced, bribed with hamburgers and teddy bears and, you know, there's got to be something up. I mean, we know Pfizer made $65 billion, so you only have to follow the money. But but the thing was, was that, you know, the people who are dying with COVID now in hospital, presumably, they've been, obviously, they've been vaccinated. So, so I mean, it didn't, you know, it didn't do it didn't do what they said it would do. And I mean, I think people have got to be honest about that. They can defend it all they all they like, but um, it didn't it didn't achieve what they said it would. And so, mm-hmm. and uh, when when I listened to other medical experts, like and we all know who they are, Robert Maloney, Peter McCulloch, and so many others. And I've done a lot of research. And when you listen to these people who know what they're talking about better than, as I've said, been very open about it, better than my, our Michael Baker, to be honest. I mean, these are uh, Robert Maloney. He invented the RMA, and you know, but they were all misaligned. They were all ridiculed. They were all um, just rubbished. And you know, and I thought, wow, why is that? And it's just like crazy. And then even ivermectin, just to you know, be a little bit more controversy on your program. I mean, you know, it, it, they called it a horse manure. Even on Joe Rogan, everybody knows it's what's well, not just a horse um, feed. It's a human thing as well. It won a Nobel Peace Prize, and you could get it before COVID. But as soon as COVID came, they took it off the market and tried to persuade people not to do it because it was dangerous. It wasn't dangerous. And you look at the African countries that take ivermectin for malaria; they they had very few COVID cases. So, I mean, I just think there's just so much, and uh, I've probably talked enough about it for you. But I just think <laughs> that. You know, people, um, Mark Twain said something interesting. He said people would rather believe a lie than believe that they were lied to. And uh, I know people were very genuine in there. And, of course, you know, I had people who struggled with what I was saying and and, um, and what I was thinking. But, but you know, they loved me enough. They, they put up with me, so that was good. <laughs> Do you think there's a pandemic of pride amongst our political class at the moment? Well, uh, you know, let's be honest. We uh, a politicians are for the for the people, right? And they're supposed to serve the people. And we don't see that at all. What what we see is politicians furthering their agenda. Uh, and this is a sad thing: is they all go down there with their own agenda. And again, I've been quite vocal about it. I mean, you know, you have. Um, um, I'm just trying to think that, well, you know, Georgina Barr, she brought in the, the prostitution one. You had Barnett and so forth. And then um, I'm just trying to think of all their names now. They bring in a policy and then they leave politics. And, uh, you know, obviously she's passed on now, sadly. But others, I mean, uh, Sue Bradford, the anti-smacking bill, she brought that in. She's no longer there now, but the whole of the country have to live with with that legislation that she brought in. And today we've got kids completely out of control. Now, I'm not talking about child abuse, and we, we've got to under, I mean, any common sense person understands there's a huge difference between child abuse and child discipline. And when your little one's going to put the hand on a hot stove one too many times, you might give a little tap to keep the keep the hand off the hot stove because you know that that tap is going to be better than burning for life and a scarring for life. And so... You know, I was brought up, obviously, um, I mean, we got the strap at school, I'll be honest, and so forth, but the strap kept me out of a lot of trouble. Now, am I saying bring back the strap at school? I'm not necessarily saying that, but parents have lost the ability to 
to discipline their children in a way to keep them on the straight and narrow. And so we got today, even in the classrooms, classrooms, some classrooms are out of control. They just swear at the teachers, they walk out of class and, you know, and so there's no disciplines going out the window. So what I'm saying is a lot of these politicians, they go to government with the agenda and we could, you know, name a whole lot. The, I mean, the Greens and the Marys, they've got their agenda, let's be honest, very clear. And often, as I said, they get the agenda in and then they, they leave and they leave us with the mess. Where I mean, they should really, and a lot of the big decisions take national referendums and the, the will of the people. And I could go back over things that that the majority of people have been against, but the government will still go ahead and put it through. And we've got to live with it. And, of course, what you legalise, you normalise. And so now everybody's happy with that or happy with that, but they're not seeing the fruit. You've got to look at the fruit of of society today and say, why have we... Why, why is society like this? We never, ever had these ram raids. I mean, just in Albany the other day, man with an axe goes into three restaurants, an axe, you know, and and and, and beating tables and people. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. What's happened to society? Well, we've turned our back on God, haven't we? And and we we've thrown the Bible out of schools. We we've taken prayer out of Parliament in the name of Jesus. And so society has become godless. And so. You know, a lot of people want monetary reform, and monetary reform is important. But, you know, the $5 over prescription, people are arguing over that. But my Bible tells me that it's righteousness that exalts a nation. It's not monetary reform. If we got, you know, some righteous laws back, I think our nation would be a lot more better off. And so I see, you know, when a nation turns us back on God, it's like God withdraws his hand of blessing over that nation. New Zealand was once called God's own. One's called God's own country. I mean, we've got no wild animals, not like Australia, no crocodiles, no poisonous animals really to speak of, apart from the caterpillar. I've never seen one in my life. But the thing is, is that, you know, it's a, a beautiful country, beautiful country. And, um, you know, it's just such a shame that the way we're going um, and it's going downhill very, very quickly. You're with Counterculture with Marie. I'm talking to Pastor Peter Mortlock from the City Impact Church. I want to pick up education with you because you mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I think it feeds into all of these other things. I've seen an education system. I've got two boys at the senior end of high school now, and in the time that they have been going through the schooling system, it has imploded. From, this is my view as a parent. Mm-hmm. We have now got our boys in uh, the Catholic school system, and neither my husband nor I are Catholic, and we did that because we wanted them to be in a schooling environment that provided ethics, structure, support, and really good quality pastoral care. So even as a secular family, we could see that value. You've gone one step further and created your own schooling system. How is that working? What sort of outcomes are you getting for your congregation, your family, and those wishing to attend your schools? I mean, this is great. And again, you're talking to a kid who dropped out of school at 15, right? Didn't even get a school C. And uh, to think that, you know, we pioneered and founded a school. And obviously, you know, our principal and teachers are way more educated than what, what I am. 
Um, and uh, I could just boast on our school all day long. And and I, as I said, I could boast because I've had nothing to do with it apart from obviously the visionary of it and founding it and and uh, you know encouraging them and so forth, so forth. Just just right, just today we had a poster come through from uh, Auckland University. Um, uh, Auckland University poster with four students on it, uh, promoting their business section. One of those students, uh, Jordan Pratt, and it's got their City Impact Church School. Um, we do Cambridge. Um, we have excelled some of the, the top students. Even they've got top marks even worldwide, uh, which is incredible, and in New Zealand. So I'm just so proud of our school. Um, it's very hard to have a, a private Christian school in New Zealand, and the reason for that is we get no funding from the government whatsoever. Is well, when I say whatsoever, we may get about fifty thousand a year. Um, but like all our buildings and all that, we have to um, build our, ourselves. And we're not like other private schools where we charge high fees. So most of the other private schools here on the shore, say, for example, with a child, it's about 30000 a year. Our, ours is only 10000 and I don't even want to charge that, but we have to to obviously pay for the teachers. So the school, the church funds the buildings and so forth. We've got excellent facilities, science labs and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, and uh, so, so our school, as I said, I've just been so impressed. And you're right that the secular um, state system is in abs absolute disarray. I mean, I mean, uh, without just talking about one one thing, but I am totally opposed to the sexualization of kids at the moment from the LGBT community, their gender. Now we all know a lot of nice gay people, are not, and a lot of gay people are anti uh, that too, by the way. But I mean, they are bringing they are bringing kids on now, even in child child care centres. We've got five child care centres throughout New Zealand, and they're wanting us to teach in childcare, which we don't, of course. That. Mummy and daddy might have said you're a boy or girl, but you can choose to be whatever you want to be. This is kindergarten stuff, you know, who they should not even be thinking about that. And the, you know, they're teaching their private parts, playing with their private parts. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And as you know, in the school system, you know, teenagers, uh, you know, puberty blockers, uh, even operations, life, life life-changing operations and we're going to be a huge kickback on that and so you know this is all happening in a, in a and and today you can't uh in a secular school even if a teacher just stands up and uh, says look i believe in a boy and a girl <laughs> you know and you know all these personal pronouns and all this rubbish you know this it's just unbelievable so so i just thank god that we are able to create a school where kids are safe and where they get a, a fantastic education as well. Um, and, um, you know, so as I said, I couldn't be more proud of our school. And I think mm -hmm. that they'll become, as you just have said, even, uh, you know, as you admittedly am not labeling you in any way an agnostic parent, but you've got your kids in a Christian school because you understand the values and the morals. And and that's what I said, even when my boys, my boys, um, I've, I've got two sons, uh, they're, uh, you know, around the age of 15 now, so they're totally grown up. But when they're at school, I put them in private schools, because I said to them, I don't really care necessarily from my perspective how how brilliant they are at university. I want them to have good values, good morals, and to get on with other people. If you've got good values and good morals and get on with other people, you know, be polite, uh, the world's your oyster, right? Um, and, and so, you know, our school, I'd like to think that 
all the students here, you walk around the school and it's an absolute delight. People come there and they say they can't believe how well-behaved these kids are. Now, of course, not every child who goes to our school comes to City Impact Church. We call it City Impact Church School because it's under the vision of the church. Um, and uh, we do, obviously, Christian education there as well, biblical worldview. But not every not, – it's like our child care centres. Probably 80% of our, of our kids in the child care centres don't come to our church. In our school, it's probably about um, 70% of our students come to our church and because we've got a very large church and um, 30% from outside the church. So, you know, uh, we're very open for people coming along and we have open days and all that sort of stuff for, for parents to look at. Mm. And um, you must have read about the maths teacher that's been recently lost his yeah. registration. I mean, that is utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And it's going to happen more and more. Um, you know, I mean, the whole conversion therapy bill that came through, even if kids want help today. I mean, as you know, I mean, girls walk around. When I went to school, girls walked around the playground hand in hand. That's what girls do. It doesn't mean to say they got lesbian tendencies or that they're gay, but today they're labelled gay. Um, and so, you know, they're taught they're gay. So they, you know, and so people go down that path. Where I've said, you know, it's not a good term, but it's like we are, I use a term we're breeding a whole generation of of, of sexually confused people, um, but we are, and these are the kids I'm talking about. Adults can do what adults want to do. Everybody's accountable. I say people are accountable to God at the end of the day. We'll all come before God. We'll all give an account. I thank God for the, the blood of Christ that cleanses, you know, those who believe in him of their sin. But the thing is, is that everybody gives it. So what adults do, um, adults do, but the kids, leave the kids alone because they're not, you know, no kid um, at 12, 13 should be taught um, about anal sex and all these things. I mean, it's just, and so we are educating kids these days to um, into the these kind of lifestyles. Yeah, I, the conversation I've just had before I've um, spoken to you is with an 80-year-old transsex woman and she was fascinating and she is she shares your concern she is so angry mm. about all of this uh education that's going on with the kids and right. it's yeah it is really it is quite frightening and as a parent mm. it is difficult you know because you want to shield your children from this and i think it's time i think a lot of people need to sort of stand up and speak out and you must see it within your congregation so like i find that particularly within government, they, there's a lot of work, and even within the rainbow community, there's a lot of work to try and have everyone as if they speak with a single voice. Right. And you and I know that that is not the case. And I see it like ethnically with Māori and Polynesian, for example, they try to, um, those in government say, and I think even um, Rauri Waititi from Te Party Māori even said, I speak for the single source of Māori. It's like, I am the voice of Māori. No, you're not. Right. You know, it's, and so do you see, is there a despair or a, a frustration from congregation members who may fall into these minority groups because they, are they, do they just sort of put their hand up and say, no, I'm, I'm very confident about where I'm going. And do they despair too by being lumped in with these these other groups and a belief that there is a universal voice for Māori or a universal voice for someone who is gay or, or so mm. forth. 
Well, I've got a lot of great friends who who are married, and I we I got uh, hundreds of married people in the church and Polynesian people. You go to our Mount Wellington church, and I stand out, you know, sort of thing. So, so you know, and I got I got great people. But as we know, within uh, marriedom, they are very um, you know, there's a lot of opinions. I won't say they're all divided, but all the all the all the iwis and and you know the tribes. Um, you know they've all got their opinions, and so to say, I speak for all Americans would be would be wrong. Same for me to say that I speak for all church in New Zealand. I don't. I speak for City Impact Church, and um, I'd like to think that um, you know that I can I, I can speak for Christ in the sense of what the Bible says and so forth. Um, but to say for people to say that um, I speak for all Americans or all of this this sector society is, is just not right. It's just. It's, you know, I think it's wrong. And there's a lot of frustrated people, but a lot of people don't want to speak up because they're scared of being labelled. I mean, let's be honest, you know, um, name shaming today is big, you know, like homophobic, bigot and all these things. And, and I mean, they're just name shaming and people get embarrassed over them. And it's just unfair that people, you know, would 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 call people names like that when they're not necessary that. You know, it's like today... People like myself, um, you know, people, I just read, read something and, and like uh, the guy in America and anybody who was anti the mandates, for example, was a white supremacist and, um, you know, and um, uh, uh, anti-democracy and all this kind of rubbish. And so you get all these labels that people want to put on you if you've got a differing an opinion today or just a differing thought. And, and people don't want to talk about it. They just want, you know. But I come back, like, if I just bring what I was mentioning before about, like, Sue Bradford with the end, because it's an easy one to pick on, uh, rather than the, the 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 homosexual reform bill and all that, um, but because we, we've moved on a lot. But the thing is, is that when, when Sue Bradford introduced that bill, 90% of New Zealanders did not want that bill to go through, you know. They wanted the right to discipline their children the way they saw By the way, child abuse has not gone down since that bill was introduced, of course. We knew that wouldn't happen. Bob McCoskey on Family First has a lot of great stuff on all this stuff that I'm talking about, speaks on it far better than what I do. But as I said, here was, see, so again, those politicians did not listen over the anti-smacking thing to the will of the people. They just, they're, they're there to serve themselves. They're there, they serve and then they get their pension and <laughs> they live for happily, get a post somewhere or whatever, you know. And But they don't listen to the people they're supposed to serve, you know, and, and people aren't stupid. Um, and uh, it's like even the protest at Wall in Wellington. Not one politician would come out and talk to the protesters. That was a peaceful protest up until the last day. Um, and, I mean, even Chris Hipkins, he's been in protests. He knows what protests are about, you know. And you give it, you, you're wanting to uh, say something to the government. And that was, that was quite a – I mean, I was not part of, but I was at um, the rugby game when the Springbok Tour protests were on, right? And, uh, I mean, they were so violent. I mean, I was at the game and, I mean, people were wearing crash helmets and baseball bats and they were attacking the police. I mean, hello, Wellington had nothing on that. And yet, you know, they say Wellington was the worst day in history in New Zealand for, for protests. That's not true. Um, but, but as I said, not one politician would come out and talk and listen what were the concerns of the people there? And there was such a variety of people there. There weren't only Christian people. There were Hare Krishna people. There was secular people. There were agnostic people. Um, you know, there were people who lost their jobs and so forth, so forth. And, and these were ordinary New Zealanders. So, so that's why I said politicians, unfortunately, you know, are very self-serving today.
and mm. uh, they're very out of touch with a lot of the people, you know. Yeah, they certainly are. But speaking of name shaming, um, you and I actually have fallen in the crosshairs of the same journalist, uh, Mr. <laughs> David Farrier. Oh, nice. Yes, I know. It's delightful that we were. Well, well we I, as I said, I mean, I heard David caught COVID. I wrote to him and wished him well. I said, I hope you don't get too sick. I hope you get better. And um, as I said, I pray for my enemies as well as my friends, and I do wish him the very best. Obviously, he's got an agenda, and um, but as, uh, the the agenda is not only so blatant. I, I hate the way he goes around it, um, just attacking people. I, you know, I just it's just it's sad, and he destroyed. Um, good friends of mine, John and Gillian Cameron in Arise Church, who were good friends of mine, who did nothing to resign, but he just, you know, and I won't, I won't give him the credit for destroying them, but the media, the media mm-hmm. is very slanted in New Zealand. And so why, you know, that was why, very do you th- why do you think the media have, have it out for large contemporary churches like yourself? Uh, the the mega churches, as Faria yeah. calls them. I could say that they don't understand and they get worried when so many people um, are coming along. And so, I mean, you know, our churches, you know, we have more people coming along than anybody else on a Sunday. And, um, you know, so they're worried about that. I mean, you look at the attack of another friend of mine, good friend, Brian Tamaki, and, you know, and the attacks that he's had to undergo over the years through by the media. And yet, you know, just for example, uh, down in, in Hastings in, in the Esk Valley, he had a thousand men, a thousand, he mobilized a thousand guys to give up their time of their holidays to go down and help people clean their houses. Did you see that in the media? No, you didn't see that in the media. Because I live in Napier. So I was very aware of the man up teams yep. that had come right. down. Now that he's also involved in politics, it'll only get worse. I mean, I just did a post this morning. I mean, you know, you don't. Um, Because the reason I did the post was I wanted to congratulate um, Stuff News. For the first time, I saw what I would consider, and I'm digressing a little bit, a negative uh, story about Joe Biden. It said that he uh, had five things wrong in his speech. And so what I've said is that, and I'm not a Donald Trump uh, personality fan, but what I say to people, I say, you don't read one bad thing that Biden has done, but you don't read of one good thing that Trump has done. And they both have done bad and good things, right? But as I said, the media has, is so uh, hypocritic on on this and, and it to, to the, it's so blatant and... Um, so I said, like all the faux pas that Joe Biden makes, you know, calling his wife a sister, you, 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 I'm sure you've seen them, and, and calling Camilla Harris a president and saying God save the Queen just recently after speech and all that. But they don't get a mention. Like if it was, if it had been Donald Trump, now why, uh, you know, he would have just been so ridiculed, right? Um, but he's not a globalist. And so, again, you know, people who aren't globalists, you know, and going along with the agenda of the powers to be today do get come under a lot of media attack. That's a little different to, you know, the media attack on bringing it back to whether it's um, Destiny or City Impact Church or Life or Arise or one of the other mega churches in New Zealand. And um, But there is that, you know, I guess that anti-Christian um, thing that you mentioned that's in some people, not in everybody, of course. A lot of people love us, uh, which is great. 
And we love people. Um, we love all people. We reach out to all people. Everybody is welcome, and we try to reach out to all people. We're not biased and all that kind of stuff. And help. we help all the people that we feed and non-Christian people. You know, we're not just looking after ourselves. And um, But, you know, obviously there is a, what I call that antichrist spirit. Um, and it was in uh, Herald and Nero and all these people down through the ages that uh, attacked and persecuted the church, and it's, it's no different today, you know. Hmm. Well, you guys just continue on doing what it is that you do, isn't it? So that's, I mean, it, it's really the the survival. I mean, Christianity has survived all of this time, and it just shows that there is an element in that. If well, people, thing, if, Marie, if I could just say, hmm. because you know, a lot of people ask, and I and I saw a comment that you, you mentioned is, you know, what is the difference between our kind of our church and the traditional church? And I and I often say the message that we preach that Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for the sin of mankind. That message is the same message that's been preached for 2,000 years by churches across the board who can call themselves Christian churches, right? And so that's the message we preach. The way that we package it is more contemporary. So we sit on softer seats. We sing contemporary songs with modern music and modern guitars and drums and smoke machines relevant to people today. And and so, you know, we, we have sermons that relate to people. So there's no like bells and smells, if I use that term, or cloaks and daggers. So there's no religiosity that people don't understand and people, you know, are confused over. It's interesting when people get married or buried, they do want a little bit of religion in their life there. But, you know, our churches are just, you know, we want to reach um, today's world. And so, you know, the way we do it, but the message is the same. So it's the same that's been preached for 2,000 years. So, so, and that's 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 what we really are about. Um, and all, all, like, as I said, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, that's what he was about too. And he's known for blood and fire, the fire, the gospel, you know. And because I got saved, God touched my life, and that's what burns in my heart. And I know God loves all people, and um, he doesn't discriminate. And, of course, he wants all people, he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of eternal life. So even you, Marie, as I'm talking to you, you said you've got an open mind, you've got an open heart. I bless you in the name of the Lord, and I hope and pray that, that your uh, heart would be open and God opens up your eyes to him. Oh, thank you very much, Peter. And if other people want to check out your message or have a look at some of the amazing things that you do, I mentioned that website before. Let everybody know where they can find that. Yep. Uh, just cityimpactchurch.com, pretty easy. I don't even know if you have to say www these days, do you? <laughs> cityimpactchurch.com or petermortlock.com, and um, we're not hard to find. Everybody knows, I think, where we are that, that live in, in the surrounding district. We've obviously been around for quite a while now, having a, the national television program. We've been on TV for over, uh, coming up 20 years, I think, and um, it screens in our 252 countries around the world now. So, yeah, so love to anybody is welcome. Awesome. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Pastor Peter Mortlock from City Impact Church. Don't disappear. Marty is waiting in the wings with Media Matters here on Counterculture. And this is Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie at As We Do every week at this time. Joining me is Marty Gibson with Media Matters. Good morning, Marty. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm good, thank you. Chilly, but good. Oh, yeah, I'm chilly, but good too. Hey, before we get going, um, we've had some feedback. Oh. I know, I know. The inbox team flicked these through to me, and I thought, ooh, I have to read them out. Oh, now I've got to find them. 
so we, we, we've been called from Vicky. This was very interesting and informative. Uh, from Rachel, uh, this was the interview with Trevor. Thanks, for Marie, uh, thanks, Marie, for mentioning Trevor and being on RCR before. I was able to track that down and have a good listen. Another one, really liking Trevor Loudon's discussion. Another fantastic discussion. Loving listening to the interviews, thoughts and opinions. Have a wonderful interview style, warm and intelligent. That's from Tracy. This was actually from us from Media Matters last week. Uh, this is from Sandra. Love the no shit Sherlock file, which I think I was talking in regards to education and open plan classrooms and media matters last week. The file is bursting at the seams, again, um, against the so-called modern learning environments, but the rubber stamped negative when I spoke out. Uh, as per the lady you interviewed, I used to I used meditation as a very effective tool in the classroom for myself and my children, and that was Kelly the Ludos. So thank you, Sandra. And love Marie's style, intelligence, and perfect radio voice. Oh, thank you. And very much like Marty as well. There we wow. go. So there you go. Some feedback for us. It's always, you know, when you're saying things that aren't being said somewhere else, there is that feeling of nervousness. <laughs> Pretty obvious. Why isn't anyone else saying it? I know. I was actually working in Wellington all weekend for my day job. Actually, the number of people that quietly came up and said, thank you so much for, you know, your other job and little winks and, and <laughs> nudges because they're listening and they're feeling that finally – that they're hearing their voices reflected. You know, I'm really glad that we can do that. I mean, what we do with this segment is we take what's in the legacy space, by and large, and we sort of apply an overall critical thinking lens to it and or mm. sort of tear off the rose-tinted glasses a little bit and scratch a little sometimes bit deeper to see what's underneath. It's much, sometimes it's as much about what's not in the news as is, is fascinating as what is. I've said it before at the end of shows, share it widely because it helps to change the agendas. It helps to broaden Overton's window. And as I said uh, last week, it's like we're in a car with someone we suspect is a serial killer and the city's turned to an urban environment. Now we're turning down a country road and uh, it's never going to be easier to speak up so that's a big help if you can share it with your networks oh absolutely so being away of course in wellington my access to things like the heralds were practically non-existent but i did grab the post in the sunday star times but i also was staying with family and the first thing that struck me on friday night they popped the uh, six o'clock news on uh, which is something that i'm not generally akin to watching these days mm. and i remembered it reminded me why it reminded yeah. me why. And the lead story was the report card for Te Whatu Ora. It has been a year. Uh, they do say time flies when you're having fun. I can't believe it's been a year of that monstrosity. So for those who aren't necessarily averse in health or what's going on in the healthcare system, Te Whatu Ora have now gone a complete full circle in, in the New Zealand health system. So if you've been in the system for more than 30 years, you will see that we've literally gone all the way back to where we were in the 90s. And that was a thing called Crown Health Enterprises. So Tafata Order is essentially a Crown Health Enterprise and everything with a, a whizzy new name. And this is why I got a bit angry at the telly and had to pop off and have a glass of wine. The view from both the chief executive and Dr. Aisha Viral was, quote unquote, a narrow pass mark for their first year in existence. Right. <laughs> I was stunned. I was utterly stunned that they could think that anything in this last year within the health system would have achieved a pass. But then again, 
I have to put my Cam Slater hat on and remember that these are essentially politicians after all. They're never going to apologise for anything and they're never going to admit that they've got it wrong or it's anything less than stellar. So the fact that they said a narrow pass mark, I think is probably as as honest as you're going to get. What do you think? I go a step further than Cam in my cynicism, you know, because as I often say, you know, you you can look at what the government's getting criticised for what appears to be bungling, and you can say, God, these guys are stupid, they're doing a terrible job. Maybe they're doing a great job. Mm. I always wonder whether something's a feature, not a bug. This move towards centralization. Also, there's so much double speak. But I guess what I just took away looking at all, because there were quite a few stories about health in the papers over the weekend anyway that we'll get to uh, presently, but it, it's getting starker and starker, this war between management and people actually doing things. And that's been played out. I mean, you could argue that the war between U- Russia and Ukraine is a war between you know finance and producers. Another thing we'll get to later on is that this most prominent embodiment of that is the WEF. It's the ultimate management class, mm. seeks this kind of neo-feudalism. And I'm so glad you brought that point up because it was the one that was screaming at me. And has mm. been for some time. And the absolute steady mushroom-like growth in non-frontline staff, so I'm not talking about medical staff or, or technicians or anything of the like, non-frontline staff. So these are backroom laptop lifestylers for all intents and purposes <laughs> that run the health system. They have grown exponentially like every other government department but in health that has been growing yeah and they're always saying oh well you know now we've got this extra management we're going to make it more efficient it's like dude you're the problem in stuff, uh, report card one year on from Te Whata Ora. This is the headline. A year ago, the government established a nationalised health system. Te Whata Ora intended to remove the postcode lottery of healthcare. Now, that is gaslighting right there. Yeah. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. That was never its intention. Its intention was to centralise and take back control of all healthcare outcomes, decision-making away from the 23 DHBs, pure and simple, nothing else. If they Mm. say anything else, they're lying. Their lips are moving. The truth is not coming out. I can tell you that right now for a fact. They went on to say, truly a national health system with treatment no longer determined by where you live was the triumphant cry in December 2021. So we all know that that's a crock of crap. Elected district health boards were off to the scrap heap with more than 80,000 employees would now have one employer from July 1st, 2022. I looked this morning, I've been up early before the show got started, and I was diving around trying to find, because the whole point of centralisation, one would have thought that if you were getting rid of all of those 23 DHBs and you were amalgamating the what is essentially the administrative state for to order under a single umbrella, that there would be plenty of people that all of a sudden would become surplus to requirements because no longer you have 23 little fiefdoms, you now just have one. Mm. I could not find anywhere where there was essentially restructuring on a grand scale. I found that there were chief executives of each individual DHBs that moved on. But those chief executives moved on mostly to other positions within the organisation or they went out into the private sector, some of them. So 
those are only a handful. So you've gone and taken this monolith that was in 23 pieces, pulled it together and not streamlined it at all whatsoever. But, I mean, that power grab is a recurring pattern. And, I mean, we won't – this is the only thing that's on this, so so I'll bring it in because it's relevant in Friday's Herald – there was a, an article about Auckland Council furious at government move on light rail. It, it had Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown furious with the government ministers for basically moves that will see the council stripped of its planning role for the light rail corridor. He was responding to a letter from Finance Minister Grant Robertson, Housing Minister Megan Woods, instructing uh, Kainga Ora Board Chair Mark Gosh to begin a process of potentially taking control of urban development along the 24-kilometre light rail route from Central City to the airport. Now, this isn't there's no consultation. It's just old squealers got in there and uh, yoink. We know best, you know. My background as a Marxist student politician uh, means that I will be better placed to tell you and private businesses what you're going to do. And mm. it's it's the same with health, just this assumption that politicians can manage managers to manage doctors better than you could say to doctors, hey, look, we've got these issues in this region, get in and fix them. Mm. We'll give you resources to hire who you need. And it's that kind of total rebuild that the health system needs. They went on and stuff and spoke to six people to get their past and power marks. So obviously, Margie Apa, who is the chief executive for all of Te Whara Ora, of course, she gave it the, uh, what did she term it, the narrow pass mark from Margie. Yeah. Aisha Verrill's living in a whole other place that we don't live in. Aisha th- thinks that it's been fantastic. And she's now talking about increasing nursing placements, which we'll get onto in a minute. They also spoke, um, spoke to Shane Retty, Dr. Shane Retty, uh, National Spokesman for Health. Of course, he was very scathing, but it was the other three that uh, they spoke to Julian Vias is from ASMS, Deborah Powell I think is from the association and the other chap is Paul uh, Golfer. Deborah Powell, the DHB drove us to the brink of disaster and COVID's tipped us over to the edge. It's not to Fatu Aura's fault. Yeah I mean you know speaking of Aisha Verrill did you read in the weekend Herald that she was going to visit Auckland City Hospital and before her arrival an email was sent to staff announcing that measures were being taken to mitigate extreme pressures on acute services. Yeah, an additional 40 flex beds were being opened, private ambulances had been contacted, contracted to help transfer patients, education and training had been deferred and temporary staff were being brought in from outside agencies. I guess that allows her to with a straight face say, yeah, pass mark, we're doing great. I was talking to some people, they're real happy about the measures we've taken. It's right up there with Jan Tennity. I saw, I think she was on Q&A over the oh. weekend, saying, yeah, literacy's improving. And Jack Tame just going, oh, yeah, okay. It's just like, dude, you know, you're the guy who's uh, the great shining hope of New Zealand journalism. It's amazing how often that happens to him. Someone says, no, nah, no, it's not. There's this, and it just moves on. I watched a bit of that, uh, as you know, because I was texting you. <laughs> Yeah. It's funny because I've only ever read, I, I, because I don't watch a lot of television like that, I, I only ever read stuff about Jane Tanetti. So mm. I didn't see the beginning of the piece, who she was introduced, she's on there. And I actually had to text you saying, who is this woman? Uh, right. It's kind of her shtick, as I said. It's, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It allows her to, oh, to mislead Parliament. And they kind of say, yeah, well, I mean, she did lie and she didn't take any opportunity to correct the lie, but she's just so thick. 
<laughs> it didn't seem malicious. It just seems never uh, attribute to a conspiracy what you can attribute to. Tame, to be stupidity. fair, did actually have some very good questions that he was yeah. trying to, to pin it to the mat with and actually get some straight answers. And it was like she was dancing around and like one of those hippos uh, in Fantasia, spinning around, <laughs> twirling, you know, sprinkling sort of happy fairy dust everywhere. I mean, it was just utter waffle. It worked. Well, I'm just going to get the, So Powell from the, the union continued to say here, not after saying it's not to fight or is fault, National Secretary for both Resident Doctors Association and the Apex Union. Every frontline worker or union representative interviewed for the story says they never expected things to be honky-dory by now. So if you're in the system, you kind of knew it was shit and, and you knew that it you've, was going to continue yeah, to be shit. you've seen endless restructures. You've seen endless yeah. new management things with, yeah, everything's going to be cool. And you just know, oh, yeah. Yeah, especially if you have been in the health system in this country for more than a decade. Believe me, you, yeah. you'll be thinking that way. But conditions are unchanged, if not worse, than a year ago. Most were giving Tafata order the benefit of the doubt. And this is the quote. It's a bit hard to eyeball the alligators when the swamp is still full, Powell says. Okay, right. Powell, what are the alligators? Because I certainly know what I believe the alligators are, and that's what I just talked about before, all of those alligators that for somehow got moved to this much, much bigger swamp. Vengeful nurses who get into management. <laughs> you said that. I did not say that. I'm not going to talk about vengeful nurses, but I'm going to talk about nurses that go into management. There's a reason why a lot of nurses go into a management. When you look at nursing training and the role of a nurse, everything in nursing is process-driven. They are process-led creatures by their yeah. nature. So if you're a person that loves process, you and nursing are uh, nursing's a great place for you. Yep. You give them a process and a protocol yep. to follow. They'll be sending and Facebook messages to their family members. Yeah, they love it, they're, and they're good at it. And we need, and you need those people in a system to make it work. They are the worker ants. They are the uh, the honeybees. They are the people that make all of that happen. Yep. So it means that they they have a natural affinity for management because, of course, if you're already steeped in the process and you understand the process, that means that you can help create the process and manage a process. Especially in the government situation, you know, they no, you know, they might not do so well in the private sector. But where the process determines the outcome, they're great. And I should say, like, because I just am listening to myself, sounds like I'm being mean to nurses. You really got to feel for those medical staff. And there was a great article in the paper about hospice care nurses and really mm. touching stories. For the listeners that aren't aware, Marty and I both have pretty in-depth backgrounds within the health industry. So we won't go into details of what those are, but believe me, this is an area that we both know a lot about. And I think you're right, those nurses, those really incredible nurses, often will not stay in those. They'll either go into management, into the hospital system, or they'll pull out of that hospital system and go into a lot, go into uh, private um, hospital arrangements. They'll go into things like hospice, particularly ones that are a little bit more dynamic and think outside of the square and don't fall into that process-driven box. And a don't like getting their hands dirty, get into cosmetic medicine. <laughs> uh, again, you said that, I did not. But they they move around and you find these really a lot of these really amazing nurses not necessarily in the public system. Also, a lot of those incredible critical thinking nurses are the ones that got mandated out. Yeah, I know a few of them. 
top level ER nurses who are cleaning houses still. Yeah. So when you have Asia Viral saying that they're opening up clinical placements, so 130 this year, 700 next year, and these are the clinical placements that mid to senior nursing students go into to order to complete their training. It does beg the question, A, why those placements weren't available to begin with. And she said, and she said, on News Talk ZB yesterday morning, that, oh, yes, I know that sounds crazy, but the only reason we now know that this was a problem is because we have to fight to order and we had everything together. And it wasn't, it was because everything was too fractionated and the DHBs were fighting amongst themselves for those nursing placements. Mm. Really, Aisha? Really? Yeah. yeah. Just getting back to that war on management, though, you know, the other thing I'll say is just the disgraceful violence against paramedics and, and nurses in uh, New Zealand's hospitals. And there was a just a piss weak quote from a manager, Dr. Mike Shepard, interim lead at Te Toka Tumai, Auckland. I assume that's probably Middlemore or something like that, said it worked closely with staff, WorkSafe and unions on the stop work notices and put measures in place. Shepard says hospitals can be stressful at times and Te Toka Tumai Auckland is sympathetic to patients and whanau who are coping with challenging illnesses. Now, you want people to be sympathetic, but when they're talking about the staff crazily overworked and stressed in those environments getting assaulted, you really want your manager to be saying, it's absolutely unacceptable. We're always going to Call the police and take the strongest measures against anyone who ever assaults our staff. That is the nature of the beast. I mean, you just have to look at Hawara, where those gang members beat up someone in the McDonald's because they were wearing red. Almost all of them got sentencing discounts. What sort of message does that send? Oh, it sends that continued message that if you're in a gang, you can pretty much get away with almost anything. If you're a scumbag at the moment, you're getting away with pretty light sentences for extreme scumbaggery Mm. it's it's almost an incentive but i was really intrigued by all of these numbers like particularly with beryl when she was announcing um the nursing numbers and she was talking about because of these placements right so 830 total 130 this year 700 next year that meant that we could get more locally trained nurses through the system but again as you said you've got you know nurses cleaning houses I know the last number I saw was something like seven or 800 that were had indicated that they were keen to go back to work. We know that there are hundreds and hundreds of nurses out there who are still not working because they've only been able to go back to work usually in private medical situations where they do not require a vaccine mandate because Tefatu Order still does. Yeah. And a lot of clinics, GP practices still do. So this is the one thing they don't touch on that. They don't touch on the existing workforce that's still out there, that still want to come back to work and they're not allowing them, number one, already trained, probably will just need to do a course to get the CME back up. That's a hell of a lot easier than trying to start and grow a whole new crop, one, don't you think? And number two, you've got these nurses who are out there who are just at their wits end and a lot of these and you've got to remember over a certain age a lot of these nurses are women have always largely been women Mm. so you fire them out there they're under stress a lot of them are working because they enjoy the work not because they need to work yeah 
and there's a lot of women around my age, 50 something, and they're thinking they're. Well, it's kind of collegial and exciting yeah. too, isn't it? You, yeah. you, 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 you're in a team, you're doing something noble, um, it's stressful, but you're getting the job done. Once you've seen the masks come off and the way you've been treated, it's tough to get that buzz out of that environment anymore. If this is from the, it's not a bug, it's a feature thing as well. Yeah, it would make sense for them to let those nurses back, but they're not. So you could say, oh, they're not because they're stupid, or you could say, well, they're not because the whole point of the reaction to the pandemic in many ways was a vaccine passport that the World Health Organization is talking about using the EU's terribly dystopian system worldwide for any travel. You know, they've got another thing planned where that's going to be ramped up again. So they don't want to get the dissenters back in the system because they're going to fire it up again. Exactly. And anyone coming into the system, so any new nursing student, any one of these 830 that Aisha reckons is going to be there, they are now still covered by all these mandates. So if you've got a young person that wants to enter nursing and they chose not to get vaccinated and they're now of an age that they can go into this training, they need to be completely up to date with their vaccinations of co- yeah. for COVID. And these are young people, and we know, it's pointless, but no, you have to comply. Now, up until that point, I think there was only one vaccination that was mandatory to go into nursing. And I've had nurses saying, oh, no, you always have to have, have, to have all your jabs to go into nursing. You always, no, you don't. No, mm. you don't. There was one, and I can't remember which. I think it may have been hepatitis. I'm not 100% certain. There was one that you had to have. I wonder how they square that when they're teaching them about bodily autonomy and informed consent. Well, do they teach them about bodily autonomy? Maybe it's, I mean, it, maybe it just quietly disappeared uh, as the foundation of m- medical ethics. By doing that, it means that you're ensuring that those coming into the system are going to be the little automatons in the process, so they're not going to question the process anymore. It is yeah. really sad. So then another figure, I'm going to dive into this and then I'm going to jump into some of your stuff. Sorry, I'm getting a bit ranty people today. That's right. Uh, Another figure that I heard last week uh, on Friday, just before I went to Wellington, was 42% of doctors were leaving medicine before they got to sort of senior training, but there was no reference to where that came from. Mm. And I thought, that's a big number. My nose started twitching. My nose did start twitching. Now, I know a lot of doctors... I know a lot of doctors who have left medicine. They've either retired early or they've downgraded the amount of hours of work significantly. They've taken sabbaticals. They've they've pulled themselves outside of the system. None of these have been captured in numbers within mm. the system. None of them. When you hear of these shortages, and these ones are New Zealand trained doctors, so they're homegrown. Then you had the COVID response, and a lot of doctors, particularly the ones that came from international locations, they fled. The minute that they saw that those borders were getting clamped down and locked down tight, they up sticks and took off. Yeah. And a lot haven't come back. So I, again, did my little spidey sense this morning, and I discovered where that number came from. And it came from a report from ASMS, which is the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists. This is an ASM submission to Tikomehana Faihua Aotearoa, which I have no idea what that is, none whatsoever, but it says Productivity Commission. So I'm assuming it's that's got to do with productivity. Oh, oh, and it's and it's on um, improving economic resilience. And they released this in April. Mm. 
was very quiet, obviously. Yeah, it was very PR, quiet, wasn't it? Yeah, the PR department didn't pick this one up. Uh, so they talked about a number of things, and I'm just going to pull out a few numbers. They talk about the pipeline, and that's what Aisha Viral is doing with her nursing thing, is the pipeline, right, to get more people into the pipeline. She's talking about that with nursing, and there are nursing shortages, but there are also shortages in places like anaesthetic technicians. We have a problem with that because there is mm. no pipeline for anaesthetic techs in this country because we don't train them here. Yep. Uh, at best, they get trained in Australia. Most of the ones that we have in this country that I've ever come across have all been English. We get them out from across there. So the pipeline in this country has been flawed. They did a comparison between the OECD and the New Zealand average, and we fall. Uh, we were relatively, in 1990, we, we were relatively close. We were running at about 8.5% per 100,000 population of graduates, and it was just under, uh, it was about 9.5. We were about a percent out from the OECD average, so a little bit under, not too bad. Fast forward to 2020, we are now, we have grown to just over 10 graduates per 100,000, the OECD average is closer to, it's about 13.5. So that gap is- 13.5? 13.5. More doctors are being trained and more people are saying, we need more doctors, we need doctors. They're being trained. Yeah. Well, we've got a shortage of kids coming out of the union-mandated education system of functionally literate and numerate. And that's, uh, you can often sheet your uh, all your issues in health back to that failure. So this is the summary for that graph. There are losses along the pipeline between graduation and vocational registration. The data is patchy in itself an issue. Getting good data is hard. But from our analysis, assuming the approximate eight-year period from graduation to vocational registration, there was a 16% loss between 2006 and 2014. This grew to a 41% loss between the graduate numbers of 2014 and 2020. 22. Wow. 41% loss. Now, they cite possible explanations, workforce losses. I think that's the euphemism for mandates. Yeah. Some doctors are working as GPs and chose not to be vocationally registered, or that means go on to specialist training. I think Brian Betty would potentially disagree with that because he's always banging on about how there is not enough GPs. Many junior doctors are just simply not entering specialist training. The latest data we've seen from 2017 where there were over 200 training positions um, unfulfilled, that's 11% of the total FTEs. We've now sought data, updated data from Tefata Order, but they say they don't hold it. We've not seen an explanation at why this is happening. So there are training places available but these junior doctors are not taking it up in order mm. to do it. I've spoken to people who, again, in senior medical who are consultants, they've, they've come out the sausage factory at the other end. They're telling me something quite different. They're telling me that uh, it has become so onious to get these trainees through. They're either A, don't cut the mustard, B, don't want to do the work, or C, they just take one look at it and go, it's not worth them. Yeah, well, I mean, you, we're getting to that uh, point of the, the glorious socialist revolution where we pretend to pay them, they pretend to work. You know, there's something really ethereal about morale, isn't there? And you need morale to work in a team and all of that management just cuts into the trust society, just the government overreach and the the authoritarian way of dealing with people just 
cuts out that joyful initiative that people have, and there's so much productivity in that. I'll do one little bit of stuff, and then I'm going to get done. Get off my ranty pants. And you're right. And morale, New Zealand has always then attracted a lot of doctors from overseas because it was perceived as great lifestyle, beautiful country, better uh, living standards than wherever it is that they came from. Most of them came were British trained. How many people out there have got a South African doctor? ASMs did dive into this as well. New Zealand graduates and new entries with vocational registration, hospital and primary care specialists. To attempt to fill the medical workforce gaps, Aotearoa in New Zealand has the second highest proportion of international medical graduates. Second only to Israel, including in our existing workforce, currently working in New Zealand, 45.5% of all medical workforce in this country are from overseas. So Mm. nearly half. That's something that means that things can change real fast, and, and it seems like they are. Yep. Of course, what's happened now, and this is where COVID does lay this, is that when COVID happened, which, as you said, things happen fast and you have this massive event, all of a sudden things become completely different. So there is now a lot of competition for these international medical graduates. We've got really poor retention of them now here in this country. The UK, which was one of our biggest taps for this, that spigot is now being turned off. In the UK, as of June 2020, there were 8,278 NHS consultancy vacancies and underestimate the national shortage. Now, I also know of Kiwi consultants who have left this country and have gone to work in the NHS because they can do so without drumroll, please. You know, they can maintain bodily autonomy in the NHS. We do not allow that here. So a lot of these international medical graduates come over on a locum basis. So they they do a working holiday, they they come and do they fill short-term contracts, they do all those sorts of things. Now, those for starters are very, very expensive. You're paying over and above standard odds for those doctors because mm. of the short-term nature. And the hope is, is that they come here, they work in the environment here, they love it, they choose to stay. That's generally what happens. Yep. When, and I don't know whether you've experienced this, but you go into um, a new place. That's how I got married. Yeah, exactly. You go to a new place and you meet, um, you know, the other consultants would sort of come round and make you feel welcome because they really want you to stay. As a survey of those international medical graduates, an average of just 62% of those graduates are still working in New Zealand a year later. Mm. Look, I could go on and on and on. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that I give this report to our team at inbox at realitycheck.radio. So if you're somebody who is in the medical field that you are interested in this report and you want to have a look at it, you can email Liz and she will get that across to you. But there's a whole bunch more in there. I tell you what, my blood pressure is up and I needed to. But it just shows you that these issues are there. And this is a union highlighting this, a union. Yeah, did you read the um, Nothing to see the Amanda Ro- Dr. Amanda Rosenberg, the big feature in New Zealand Herald? You didn't get the New Zealand Herald, did you? No, because I was, I was in, the, in the land of the Welly. The Herald yeah. was not really welcome down there. It's just the hospital management, she's an A&E nurse. She's worked in Baltimore, right? one of the highest tough. yeah real tough city um used to be great but democrats she's really concerned about the safety uh 
And, and again, you've just got so much gaslighting from management. You know, staff warm, the stress becomes a vicious cycle. Burnout leads to more staff calling in sick, which leads to heavier workloads, which leads to people leaving, which leads to bigger deficits. So you can see how that, if you look at it as a graph, we're probably, you know, starting to get to the steep bit. But then the management come in with the gaslight. At a national level, the experts who monitor the effectiveness of our health service say they're not yet seeing clear evidence that the staffing crisis and access barriers have led to more bad outcomes for patients than would normally occur in hospitals. Everything's fine. Well, and actually, and according to ASMs, that data isn't there. So they're blowing yeah. smoke up everybody's asses. It's amazing how often that the data isn't there. I was listening to a really interesting program about vaccinations and how there's that link between vaccinations and autism that apparently just isn't there. And uh, this lady was questioned under oath. She's a safety monitor at, at the uh, FDA or, or something. Maybe it was the CDC. She basically said, yeah, well, the work's just not there. We, we've got nothing to prove that there is a link. Not the same as proving satisfactorily there's not a mm. link. And if you look at Am Amish communities, they have virtually no autism. They've got very little allergy. Go We're back. constantly adjusting the way we manage our resources and invest investigating and implementing improvements, and we are making good progress. Shepard, interim lead for Tetoka Tumai, Auckland, says in response. There's a big industry in the rolling turds and glitter cope-up. No, you highlighted another piece which we did both pull out, which was an opinion piece by Kushla Smythe. She's the CEO of the Medical Technology Association. And and they put this in the main paper. This is one of the first times I've seen in the main paper somebody pushing back against the Therapeutic yeah. um, Goods Act. Now, on this station, we have been all over that big time if you want to see some replays on that um go check paul brennan i know paul is all over this for april 26 we, he talked to patty fahey 8th may gary moller um i know he's talked to guy hatchard and i think guy she may have mentioned this as well in his interview all of those are available at replays at realitycheck.radio so do go and have a look at them now this is somebody who is involved in the technology and medical device sector so they've gone through that legislation and actually have seen the effects that it will have for them. Their concerns were the bill as it currently stands throws out years of progress and collaboration across comparable countries and that has meant New Zealanders have timely access to medical devices. And I'm picking that a lot of them, like I know in um, diabetes, there's been a huge with those in, uh, monitors and yeah. things like that. It's a massive progress. What's more, the government has shown a willingness to make changes to the bill to address Ranga Māori and natural health products, and they should be extended to medical devices. Now, that's really interesting. So it's all right. They've gone and made, obviously, tweaks for, for Māori natural health. Hello, what about the rest of natural health and medical mm. devices? Her concern is, is that despite the facts that they have tried to present for the comparisons and the issues, the Therapeutics Products Bill in its current form will require a new regulator. There we go. Another, you know, they love them, those regulators. Yeah, that's what the health system needs. Another regulator. More regulation. And it's like you never see, see any stories about what this is the answer to. So what's the problem? You can look at opportunity cost. How many hip replacements is this? Well, there's nothing here about outcomes. I've not once seen with that Therapeutic Goods Act 
what is the outcome? What is yeah. the entire purpose? How involved is the, the pharmaceutical industry in pushing this? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I've got my Grumpium on today. I've overdosed on Grumpium. That's what a weekend in Wellington will do to you. Yeah, I mean, it was a, just a weird, discombobulated kind of news cycle this week. And I mean, there's so much in the news that, because I've been interested in productivity, because I'd like to see a bit more talk about real issues. And, and these guys are releasing um, a report this week. So I'll wade through that. But you just read the word salad that this guy writes. It's just so uninspiring, and it's uh, that high fiber thing again. Talking about oh, the new stuff on on local government. Um, so where's that? From? We both recognize the strength of communities to respond to systemic chain challenges for themselves with the right support from central and local government. Again, the recommendations we have made in our respective reports can be considered mutually reinforcing. So, I mean, the fact that it's finally they're talking about the ability of people to do things for themselves when it should be primary. If you're looking for themes, that's a theme for me always. It's like, well, okay, we've got this giant neo-feudalist kind of body that's never talked about in the media for some reason. It's wanting to centralize, centralize, centralize power. Where's the corresponding effort? to sheet responsibility and power back to the individual. I guess that's up to us. Mm. There's so many examples of, you know, that centralization and how it's, I mean, you know, from history, it doesn't, it doesn't lead anywhere good, but yeah. Speaking of the WEF, old uh, Fran O'Sullivan got on uh, one of the two 757s and shot over to China. Yeah. Mentioned summer Davos in the context of Premier Li's address to the summer Davos, a World Economic Forum meeting in Tianjin, where he talked up the Chinese economy and criticised the West for calls on de-risking, but noted that China's economic rebound has been in an apparent positive direction since the beginning of this year. Well, I guess they did well out of COVID. But that was it. There was no mention that Christopher Hipkins is a WEF young global leader. No allusion to Jacinda Ardern's status as a young global leader. And then across the page, you've got Simon Power talking about TV. No mention of his being a WEF young global leader. And I don't, the, the head trade negotiator, whose name escapes me, uh, on this trip, WEF, whether he's a young global leader or involved with it, but he's got involvement with it. But the fact that it's never mentioned really gives me the creeps. And if it is, it's to sort of elbow aside as kind of a conspiracy theory, as Grant Robertson did. Oh, this was back in, oh, it was a couple of years ago when... Yeah, with Peter Williams. Yeah. You know, asked him a question about it and he said, oh, Peter, I think it's actually reasonably absurd that you raised that on the program today. My understanding, which I've only recently read about this, is this is a giant conspiracy theory. It's a giant conspiracy theory. He said, well, I can't appear on your show if you're going to talk about this. Now, do you think that influenced other journalists to um, not talk about this? Is that why we, we, you know, there's no mention of it anywhere? Because, you know, for a lot of people, that works. But for someone like me and someone like you, it really doesn't work. It does the opposite of working. It just makes me think, 
my gosh, what's going on with this? You know, there's, and so you look it up, the board members are just all of these globalists, Al Gore, Christine Lagarde, Lawrence Fink, chairman of BlackRock. You know, this is guys introducing all of this environmental, the social ESG governance. Scores. Yeah, the yeah. ESG scores. David M. Rubenstein, founder of the mm. Carlyle Group, who profited so handsomely for all, from all of America's uh, um, dropping peace one bomb at a time missions to destroy cities. I um, When I drove back from Wellington yesterday, I had saved up my Leighton Smith podcasts and he interviewed Ramesh Thakur. Yeah, I listened to that. Great. Gosh, Leighton Smith, you're a national treasure. Oh, no. That man is never allowed to retire. Leighton asked him around the WEF and the fact that there is this link as you've just outlined, amongst all of these people and the amount of influence peddling there. And actually, Thakur had a really interesting, he he didn't see it quite as that direct link, but what he did see it is a phenomenon of all of these people that come together and suffer from groupthink because yeah. they're all within that bubble together and they take that group think away and they're all and it's essentially a a little global club and they want to look good with their mates and when they move out into their respective governance whilst they're not enacting policy directly written down from the WEF there is a certain level of expectation amongst their peers so you have this group think amongst this group of yeah, people and I, then I, you I, actually this is I think that's not, probably an element you can imagine someone who's narcissistic like a Trudeau, like an Ardern, you know, I mean, as I've said before, I always have these horrible unbidden imaginings about what phone calls from Klaus Schwab to her would have been like, oh, you know, Jacinda, all visionary leaders, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> no, yes, I am a visionary leader. Um, and yeah, so you could flatter someone like that into destroying their country if you just kept patting them. But I don't buy that these people just accidentally act like they want to rule the world. There's a really strong contempt for ordinary people going well, through the whole thing. I think that they that's the thing. They live in this this bubble. And having spent a weekend in Wellington, and I haven't been to Wellington for a wee while, you live in this bubble. And, and I, you know what I think it is? It's particularly if we look at it from a New Zealand perspective, a lot more people, particularly in the bubbles of Wellington, live in Aotearoa, whereas the rest of us that live in New Zealand see a completely different picture. And when it comes to the election in, what, 13, 12, 13 weeks' time, it will be essentially, I believe, a vote. You're either voting for Aotearoa or you're voting for New Zealand. You've got to pick one because that's where mm. we're at. I'm still totally undecided. I didn't get back uh, to Napier in time to hear uh, Winston's roadshow because he's, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to, talk to everybody and and it is really getting to that point that I know that I'm going to have to vote with my head not my heart and that upsets me because you know you want to feel really good about what you're doing but the reality of it is is in order to have any skin in the game you're going to have to take a bit of pill and yeah. Lots of grumpy him over that, but anyway, continue on. Well, I digress. Just, you know, I mean, like there's a guy uh, Yuval Noah Harari, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the brains trust of the WEF. He's a WEF advisor. Has said we just don't need the vast majority of the population. He's the useless eaters guy, isn't he? Yeah, he, I mean, but <sighs> like if you're familiar with with all the stuff, right back to the Club of Rome days. The useless eaters thing is a pretty familiar trope with these guys. And and um, it's two classes of people. Yep, 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 that's what it is. 
Yeah, he said, fast forward to the early 21st century when we just don't need the vast majority of the population because the future is about developing more and more and more sophisticated technology like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. Most people don't contribute anything to that except perhaps for their data and whatever people are still doing, which is useful. These technologies increasingly will make redundant and will make it possible to replace people. If you sort of boil down what they want, and I talked about this yesterday, you know, it's no sovereignty, uh, sorry, last week, a global currency, central banks doing that right now, global governance, ESG scores and all that stuff, dictatorship by corporate cartels. So, you know, this is where the the stuff for the Therapeutic Goods Act is coming in. Who, who wants it? Well, some of these global cartels want it because it helps eliminate their competition. The dictatorship backed by global NATO, so that's the Radio New Zealand guy getting jumped on when he went against the uh, policy. Luxon gushing over the dwarf in the T-shirt. Total censorship directed by media and social media cartels. And that's where Dear Leader's gone now. She's just driving that same agenda. And go back to her speaking to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, we're the first country in the world to run and make sure all of our legislation is compatible with UN Agenda 2030. Who knows what the Agenda 2030 is? Mm. Who voted for that? Mm. Who even remembers her talking about it or any media mentioning that that's the railway track we're on? Well, you know, the COVID era was the era of the expert I think the post-COVID era is going to be the era of the regulator. I think it might be the era of the small village. (laughs) There are certainly a lot of themes and we've covered off. Have you got anything else on your little list? Well, you know, I've got one thing. You know how you do a good news? Oh, yeah, I'm glad you found good news because I didn't find any. Well, it was a bit dark this week. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. Usually I'm the optimistic one, but not this week. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I probably, yeah, probably am considerably more um, cheery, aren't I? Oh, we didn't even talk about Kitty Allen. No. I'll read you one quote about that, which is Matthew Hooten in the New Zealand Herald on Friday. Uh, he's talking about how well Chris Hipkins was doing overseas. So Hipkins has made some progress. What a shame then that another of his arrogant, incompetent and in this case, exceptionally overrated subordinates, Justice Minister Kitty Allen overshadowed him. Man, she's annoyed him at some point. <laughs> but there was a, an article that featured both in the uh, Sunday Star Times. Uh, Graham Tuckett did an article on why Cliff Curtis should have won an Oscar for The Dark Horse. Yes, I saw that. Genesis Portini, who that's about, was a great friend of mine. And there's a scene in that movie that's based on a fight he and I had with the Black Power, where he sets up the uh, the game of chess on, on the bonnet of the car and then gets punched out. It was actually a lot heavier <laughs> in real life than it was in the movie. There was about 15 patched gang members, a lot of them carrying baseball bats and stuff. I had to chuck him in the passenger seat of his car and uh, drive out of there. It was one of those hilarious things that uh, you get with life in Gisborne and the sort of mixture of friends you make. And while all this was going on, there was at one point he asked to borrow some money off me. He always, you know, borrowed bits of money off me because if he didn't borrow it off me, he'd borrow it off the mongrel mob who'd charge him 100% interest to buy a box of piss. Asked if he could borrow a bit more. He said, oh, ah, oh, I, uh, 
how are you for money at the moment? I said, oh, actually, I'm not too bad. I said, oh, could I borrow a bit more than than, than uh, usual draft? Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting, uh, uh, they're going to pay me uh, uh, $10,000 in a few weeks for um, for my life story. So, uh, and I said, well, how much do you need? And he said, oh, you know, 300 bucks, would that be too much? And, you know, I, I think I've even loaned him a bit more. He always paid me back. And yeah, he paid me back. And I just thought, man, that seems unlikely. But whatever, you know. Mm. Yeah, and he was taken, taken too young, Genesis. I get a thrill every time I see uh, that come up in the paper again. And I, I when, we, when the film was on, I was sitting behind uh, another great mate of mine, Noble Keelan, who's a character in the film, when Genesis comes around and he's standing outside his house and it's like, oh, you know, telling him off. And Genesis walks away into the night and I was sitting in the movie theater poking Noble in the back going, <laughs> what a stink fella, man. Won't even <laughs> let your mate into the house. And going, oh, I know, because he would have always let him in. Yeah. But uh, I got a kick out of that. Very good. Well, look, we're going to have to wrap this up. As always. Compliment. Don't disappear because Woke Word of the Week is still coming. It's going to be an absolute cracker this week. You're not, in fact, it's two words. You're not going to miss that. Thank you very much, Marty. You and I will see each other again. In fact, in person, we're we'll going to do, days. yeah, we're going to do Media Matters in person. I am going to be in the Florida of um, the North in Papa Moa. So we're going to Florida, do, the Papalopolis. The Papalopolis. So that's going to be loads of fun. I can't wait to do that. And also you'll catch Marty on the political panel on a Friday morning with Paul, Olivia and Cam. I'm also scorching off a few columns uh, these days as well. So they'll be popping up soon. So keep an eye out for those. Yeah, we're really, really pumping out the content and we're really enjoying that. So don't disappear. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's been Marty and Marie with Media Matters. More to come, including Wrote Word of the Week. Have a great week. It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week. The Woke Word of the Week is where we look at words, phrases and language that make up the lexicon often employed by those in critical social justice. Today's Word of the Week, affirmative action. Definition, the practice or policy of favouring individuals belonging to groups regarded as disadvantaged or subject to discrimination, sometimes known as positive discrimination. This is most commonly deployed by academic institutions, large corporations and governments as a way to provide placements, services or support based on race. Flashback word. Racism. Definition. Prejudice, discrimination or antagonism by an individual, community or institution against a person or people on the basis of their race or ethnicity. See if you can spot the difference. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Keep that feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text. Send your comment to 2057. That number again is 2057. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.